Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 54. Welcome to another week of the war against the virus. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. What would people gain from wearing a mask, and why are you opposed to wearing one yourself? Well, I just don't want to wear one myself. It's a recommendation. They recommend it. Uh, I'm feeling good. I just don't want to be doing, I don't know, somehow sitting in the Oval Office behind that beautiful Resolute desk, the great Resolute desk, I think uh, wearing a face mask as I greet presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, queens, I don't know, somehow I don't see it for myself. I just, I just don't, maybe I'll change my mind, but this will pass and uh, hopefully it'll pass very quickly. Now, with that being said, if somebody wants to, uh, I mean, most people can just make something out of a certain material. So it's very well designated. It's very simple to do. Uh, I won't be doing it personally. It's a recommendation. He won't be doing it personally. So it's a recommendation by the federal government that the head of the federal government won't be doing. Vintage Trump. Do as I say, not as I do. He's a disaster. As we all face a potential disaster, he's the biggest disaster of all. Bigger than an earthquake, bigger than a hurricane, bigger than a flood, bigger than a wildfire, bigger even than a pandemic. Now, there are plenty of folks in this country who are delighted to hear that Trump won't be protecting himself from a life-threatening virus that hits older people especially hard. But the 73-year-old President Mayhem, he's not a mask guy. When he's greeting dictators in the Oval Office, because apparently that's something he does or wants to do, he won't be wearing a mask. Smoking! So wearing a mask will help us all flatten the curve and avoid a disaster. And the latest CDC guidance suggests it will help us fight the virus. So wear a mask, even if he won't. And please, keep your distance. No offense. But really... Just don't. If we happen to run into each other, or if you're out running, or you're getting pickup at Waffle House, don't stand so close to me, especially if you work in the White House. Because unfortunately, there's no vaccine for the coronavirus. That could be more than a year away. But even more dangerous, even more devastating, even more vexing, there is still no vaccine for stupid. No. Even more aggressively than COVID-19, Stupid 45 continues to spread across America faster and more ferociously than almost anywhere else in the world. Patient Zero was located over three years ago inside the White House. And now, thanks to the finest minds of science in the world, we can trace its path and its growth curve. From the east wing of the White House over the last few years and accelerating in the last few months, Stupid 45, patient zero, spewed the tenacious infection across the entire country with total disregard. At rallies, in boardrooms, from podiums, at the press, and all over Twitter. Spitting, sneezing, hurling, and tweeting. The stupid has gotten on people's hands, in their homes, and often comes flying out of their mouths uncontrollably. Super spreader President Mayhem has spread Stupid 45 to Fox News, to Congress, to governors nationwide. 
And now the infection has spread to a new group, a powerful group, a population that we really can't afford to have infected with the virus, a group we hope would be immune. But alas, the stupid is fast, the stupid is nasty, and the stupid has infected yet another critical American institution. The Navy, the United States Navy. Yes, landlubbers, the stupid has now infected the very highest rank in our amazing Navy, our global force for good, the largest and most capable Navy in the world. It's larger than the next 13 navies combined. It has 300 combat vessels, more than 3,700 aircraft, and over 430,000 active and reserve people. People who often run into disaster to help others and are well-trained in how to avoid disaster. And last episode, I told you all about Captain Brett Crozier, the heroic commander of the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt. Captain Crozier, you may remember, pleaded with his chain of command to protect his 4,800-person crew from the coronavirus. He wrote a letter to the high-ups pleading for help in avoiding a potential disaster. It was leaked to the San Francisco Chronicle, and it became a massive story. And as you probably know by now, Captain Crozier was fired for it, but not before his crew gave him this rousing send-off. That's the entire crew chanting, Captain Crozier, Captain Crozier. It was a massive story, infected with stupid. It became a supernova shitstorm of stupidity because acting secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, fired Crozier. Then Crozier himself tested positive for COVID-19. But acting secretary Modley couldn't leave stupid enough alone with the firing. He had to magnify the stupid. So he flew 8,000 miles to land on the same aircraft carrier to shit on Crozier and lambast the crew. He flew 18 hours from Washington, D.C. to Guam to put on his Vince Lombardi hat and give a barn burner of a pep talk on the aircraft carrier loudspeaker system. He slammed Captain Crozier in front of the same crew that had just cheered him off a couple days earlier. It was my opinion that if he didn't think that information was going to get out into the public in this information age that we live in, then he was A, too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. Too naive or too stupid. Too naive or too stupid. I want to play it again so you can better hear the reaction of the crew. And he was A, too naive or too stupid to be the commanding officer of a ship like this. (laughs) Whiskey, tango, foxtrot, indeed. But Modley didn't stop there. He didn't just slam Crozier. He took it a step further, threatening the crew and attacking the media. And I'm going to tell you something, all of you, there is never a situation where you should consider the media a part of your chain of command. You could jump the chain of command if you want and take the consequences. You could disobey the chain of command and take the consequences. But there is no, no situation where you go to the media because the media has an agenda. And the agenda that they have depends on which side of the political aisle they sit. And I'm sorry that's the way the country is now, but it's the truth. 
And so they use it to divide us. They use it to embarrass the Navy. They use it to embarrass you. That is what a leadership disaster sounds like. Modley said the media was trying to divide us. He said the media was trying to embarrass the Navy. But Modley was the one doing the dividing. And Modley was the one embarrassing the Navy. And needless to say, the crew didn't abide by his directive or appreciate his lecture. And about five minutes after he gave his lecture demanding that they don't talk to the media, they sent the audio recording of his speech to the media. And then the real shitstorm happened. So Modley flew halfway around the world on a flight that cost you, the taxpayer, $243,151, by the way, to do that. And about 24 hours after that speech, after shooting himself in the foot with a massive buckshot blast of stupid and creating a supernova shitstorm in the middle of a pandemic, Modley resigned after creating a whole new disaster. So I guess we have a new tradition on this show now, like a badge of dishonor, like a leadership dunce cap, like a scarlet letter S where we have to pass the mantle of unique level of stupid from one failed leader to the next. First, it was Senator Rand Paul for voting to block the coronavirus emergency bill. Then it was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for failing to shut down his state full of contaminated spring breakers and vulnerable old people. And now it's former acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley who gets to borrow that theme song that's been passed from one person who has excelled in the proliferation of stupid and callous to the next. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane while people behind me are going insane. I'm on a Oh yeah, it's fitting for Modley. And as of now, 300 sailors on the USS Roosevelt have now tested positive for COVID-19. That's more than half the total cases in the Navy. But without Captain Crozier sounding the alarm, it could have been a true disaster. And Modley is indeed a disaster and an asshole of the highest magnitude. And unfortunately, he's not the only one. But the Roosevelt is locked down, and the virus will be contaminated on that ship, just like it can be in our country, if we make the right moves as a country. But President Mayhem continues to fail to issue a national stay-at-home order. But despite his incompetence, America has mostly gotten the memo. Most Americans want to avoid a disaster. And Operation Stay-at-Home America is almost fully activated. 95% of America's population now is under some form of lockdown. 316 million people in at least 42 states, three counties, nine cities, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico are being urged to stay home. So 95% of America is staying at home right now. And 5% of America has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us. So at least 5% of all American leaders are still infected with the stupid. So 5% of America is riddled with the sickness, the sickness of stupid. And a handful of more rural states, Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota, still do not have statewide stay-at-home orders in place as of this recording. 
A few others had only partial orders issued locally by cities or counties. They are Wyoming, Utah, and Oklahoma. So here's your list of places not to go on vacation for any reason for, well, I don't know, forever? Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Oklahoma. There's your list of places that will soon have very cheap land, hotels, and shitloads of coronavirus per capita. And I've been to all those states, so I've checked those boxes. Most, I'll be okay with having to miss. Others, less so. I really like Utah. The skiing's off the charts. It's pretty cheap, and they make that High West whiskey, which I love. But I ain't going back anytime soon, and I feel for those of you that live there. And to those governors, Arkansas, Governor Asa Hutchinson, Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds, Nebraska, Governor Pete Ricketts, North Dakota, Governor Doug Burgum, South Carolina, Governor Henry McMaster, Utah, Governor Gary Herbert, Wyoming, Governor Mark Gordon, and South Dakota, Governor Christy Nome. All are Republicans, all are Trump supporters, and South Dakota Governor Christy Nome, she's a real gem. And a pending disaster, someone who we might have to play that song for in the next episode. Because despite calls from across her state and the recommendation of Dr. Fauci and 300 cases in her state and six people dead, she refuses to issue a stay-at-home order for South Dakota. She did issue a statewide day of prayer, though. She seems to think prayers will stop her people from getting sick, unlike us heathens here in New York City. Check this out. South Dakota is not New York City. And our sense of personal responsibility, our resiliency, and our already sparse population density put us in a great position to manage the spread of this virus without needing to resort to some of the measures that we've seen in some of these major cities, coastal cities, and in other countries. My team has put in some thoughtful, strategic, some guided measures by using science and facts and data to what is happening right here on the ground in South Dakota. The calls to apply for a one-size-fits-all approach to this problem in South Dakota is herd mentality. It's not leadership. Herd mentality. It's herd mentality to shut down your state in a pandemic. I guess it's also herd mentality to vaccinate children from the measles or outlaw murder or send people to serve in our national army. So thanks to Governor Nome, South Dakota people have freedom, the expansive freedom to infect others and the freedom to be infected with the stupid. So eight disastrous governors are still deeply infected with the stupid. I don't know if they can be cured. Boris Johnson ending up in the ICU hasn't cured President Mayhem. And it looks like these governors may have a terminal case of stupid. And my message to all of them is clear. You're putting your people at risk. You're putting us all at risk. Kim Jong-un is celebrating. Vladimir Putin is thrilled. Our enemies are celebrating. Not locking down your state is doing the work of ISIS for them. They never could have dreamed up killing 100,000 Americans. They don't have to. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and others like her are doing the work of our enemies for them. Stop playing politics with people's lives. It's about public health. It's about national security. It's about common sense. It's about our grandmas and grandpas and our moms and our dads. So please, listen to the science. Listen to common sense. Listen to public enemy. Maybe you don't hear a lot of it in South Dakota, Governor Nome, but you can help us avoid a disaster if you do one simple thing. Shut it down. Well, look around, here go the sound of the record, boom, boom and pound, when I shut them down. I 
So almost all of America is shut down now. But the virus is far from shut down. Very far. We're in what I think is a time of war. Our world war. And it's going to be brutal. We know that now. And it's going to be long. And I hope you're ready for that now. And for the last few episodes of Angry Americans since the war against the virus began, I brought you leaders who can help you through it. Navy SEAL and leadership expert in chaos, Chris Fussell. Army Colonel Miles Caggins. Medal of Honor recipient, Flo Groberg. And frontline emergency room doctor, Paul Hazer. All fighters alongside you and me and the rest of the world in this war against the virus. And in this episode, we're going to talk to an innovative field general leading frontline fighters all across America and around the world. An important, inspiring American who will give you hope and resources. Someone who may already be having an impact in your community. And if not, he may be coming soon. When disasters do hit, I always say, look for the helpers. And this is one of America's greatest, Jake Wood. Without hesitation in the face of fear and doubt, every five Jake Wood's a guy that's all in. For the last decade, Jake Wood has been a master of disaster. He's been one of the fastest rising leaders in America. Now, he's one of the most important leaders in America. And when disasters hit and others run out, he runs in. He's the CEO and founder of Team Rubicon, one of the most innovative, impactful, and inspiring organizations on the planet. Team Rubicon is a disaster response organization fueled by the power of American combat veterans and they've been saving and changing lives for over a decade now. Every war has leaders that develop strategies, build armies, and inspire their followers. From General George Washington, to Ulysses S. Grant, to Smedley Butler, to Norman Schwarzkopf, the names live on forever. They're taught in leadership academies. There are books written about them, high schools named after them. And that'll be true of Jake one day soon, too. Every victory in war requires innovation. From gunpowder to the airplane, to body armor, to night vision. Innovation is a key to victory. And that'll be the case in this war too. And Jake's leading that innovation. He's been doing it in disaster after disaster for the last decade. So COVID-19 is not his first rodeo or his first massive disaster. Team Rubicon has led in six earthquakes, 116 floods, 44 hurricanes, 20 tornadoes, and 64 wildfires worldwide. And Jake will tell you what it's like to operate in a disaster zone. He'll share how he's right now leading forces on the ground in communities nationwide. He'll tell you what's getting in his way, and he'll give you hope. I hope it never happens to you, but one day, on your darkest day, you might look up and see some of Jake Wood's Team Rubicon gray shirts walking down your street, into your house, or maybe carrying you to a hospital. Right now, They're saving and changing lives nationwide and worldwide. When I say look for the helpers, it's like looking for your super friends, your Avengers. And when it comes to the helpers, Jake Wood is like Captain America. He's bold, he's courageous, he packs a punch, and he gets shit done. Most of all, because he empowers others. Of course, you'll hear why Jake's angry and why you should be angry too. He'll talk about his favorite drink and about his time playing Division I football at Wisconsin. He'll share a first car story that almost destroyed his face and some keys to being a successful innovator in the world of technology. 
And later in the show, I'll give you some information about how you can break down some barriers and help Jake and Team Rubicon, also known as TR, and how you can join them. If you're feeling helpless right now, feeling frustrated, feeling bored, feeling angry, I got you. Stick around, and I'll give you a way to turn that righteous anger into positive impact and a way to get the hell out of your house in a way that doesn't get you arrested or get other people sick. More than any other pod before in this one, you can not just help the helpers, you can be a helper. I'll also give you an update from the front lines here in New York City, a glimpse into what likely soon could be happening in your city or town. As I record this, sirens continue to roll by outside my window nonstop. The hospitals here are overflowing. The military is deployed to set up field hospitals in Central Park, in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, and at the Javits Center, just like they're doing in Washington, Michigan, Florida, and nationwide. The fight we face here in New York is the fight you face there, wherever you are. If you don't already, you will soon. It's tense. It's hard. But it's not yet a true disaster. And New York is uniting in the face of the adversity. I have some special thank yous and a salute to an incredible American who is at times angry, the great Bill Withers. And like the guest before, our conversation with Jake will help us all adapt, improvise, and overcome in the face of adversity. He'll give you ammunition for the fight. He brings light, not heat. And like the rest of us, in New York, in New Jersey, in Texas, in Utah, in Wyoming, on the USS Roosevelt, and across the entire globe, wherever you are, Jake, you, me, we're all riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. But first, more than ever, there's some news and issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And as the war against the virus expands, disaster is striking families all across America. So leading us off, of course, is our war against the coronavirus. More than 14,800 Americans have died now. U.S. coronavirus cases are now over 430,000. That's more than the entire population of the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Oakland, California, or Tampa, Florida. When I dropped this episode of the podcast seven days ago, it was 4,762. Now it's 14,800 Americans dead. It's more than tripled in one week. The war against the virus is expanding rapidly nationwide. And here in the front lines in New York City, we continue to take massive casualties. But the battlefield is now expanding as the virus attacks our neighbors and our Empire State Master of Disaster. Governor Andrew Cuomo continues to lead the way and reported that 779 people had died in the last 24 hours, the state's highest one-day total yet by more than 100. The bad news isn't just bad. The bad news is uh, actually terrible. Highest single-day death toll yet, 779 people. Uh, When you look at the numbers on the death toll, it has been going steadily up, and it reached a new height um, yesterday. The number of deaths, as a matter of fact, the number of deaths will 
continue to rise as those hospitalized for a longer period of time pass away. The longer you are on a ventilator, the less likely you will come off the ventilator. Just to put a perspective on this, 9-11, uh, which so many of us lived through uh, in this state and in this nation, 2,753 lives lost. This crisis, we've lost 6,268 New Yorkers. So we've already lost more than double the number of New Yorkers we lost on 9-11. But that number could be even higher in New York and nationwide. If you die at home from the coronavirus, there's a good chance you won't be included in the official death toll because there's a discrepancy in New York City's reporting process. The problem means the city's official death count is likely far lower than the real toll taken by the virus. It means that victims without access to testing are not being counted, and even epidemiologists are left without a full understanding of the pandemic. About 200 New York City residents are now dying at home each day, compared to 20 to 25 such deaths before the pandemic. The FDNY, the fire department, has said that it responded to 2,192 cases of deaths between March 20th and April 5th, or about 130 a day. That's an almost 400% increase from the same time last year. It's an insight to what could be happening in other cities and towns nationwide. And New York's neighbors are getting hit hard, too. New Jersey's toll is at a one-day high, with 232 people dying of the virus since the previous day. That's according to Governor Phil Murphy, who, along with California Governor Newsom, has really risen to the moment to shine. Connecticut also had its biggest one-day increase in deaths, with Governor Ned Lamont reporting that 71 people had died since the day before, five times the new deaths he had in the 24 hours earlier. So the three states together, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, reported 1,034 deaths in one day, the first time the region's one-day toll topped 1,000. Still, all three governors said there are signs that the virus spread may be slowing, but it's no time to let up. And Cuomo continues to lead effectively, with candor and with authority. None of us has the right to be reckless in our own behavior, which compounds the problem we're dealing with. Now is not the time to be playing frisbee with your friends in the park. It's just not. We underestimate this virus at our own peril. Now is not the time to slack off on what we're doing. So listen to Cuomo, people. Don't be reckless. No frisbee in the park with your friends and no slacking off. The battles are now erupting nationwide, and they're not just limited to urban areas. The fire is burning. The coronavirus has now reached more than two-thirds of America's rural counties, with one in ten reporting at least one death. The New York Times had an excellent report and a really useful infographic. But doctors and elected officials across the country are warning that a late-arriving wave of illness could overwhelm rural communities that are older, poorer, and sicker than most of the rest of the country, and already dangerously short on medical help. And concentrated outbreaks continue to devastate, in nursing homes in particular. Last episode, I told you that 13 veterans had died in Holyoke, Massachusetts, at the Soldier's Home. That number now is 27. The number of dead veterans at the Soldier's Home in Holyoke, Massachusetts has more than doubled in the last week. 
One of those veterans was 83-year-old Albert St. Peter. He had very little family. So the soldier's home had a special memorial service to pay their respects and honor the American hero. National Guard members and staff saluted Albert, standing six feet apart at the memorial service. They didn't want him to go to rest alone, so they had a military honor service, and the flag was presented to the nurse that was in care of Albert. But what happened to Albert and those other veterans is unacceptable. And now the state attorney general is investigating, and the National Guard has been called in to help. And I'll continue to update you as things unfold, because our war against the coronavirus is expanding fast. And the expansion of that war includes around the world. And some places are actually winning, big time. New Zealand has managed to do something that most countries wish they could. For four straight days, it's reported a decline in the new coronavirus cases. The country just reported 29 new confirmed and probable cases, bringing New Zealand's total to 1,239, including only one death, only one death in the entire country. And of those cases, only 14 are in the hospital and 317 have recovered. Now, New Zealand's a small island country with a population of just 5 million people. But they're halfway through a month-long lockdown nationwide aimed at not only containing the virus, but eliminating it. And so far, that approach appears to be successful. And the real lesson from New Zealand so far has been the combination of good science and strong leadership. And that's been Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And it's meant widespread testing. To date, New Zealand has carried out 51,165 tests. To put that in perspective, earlier this week, the United Kingdom, a country with about 16 times more people than New Zealand, had tested 200,000 people. So their population is 13 times larger, but they've only tested four times more people. So New Zealand seems to be not only ahead of the curve and bending the curve, but blocking the curve. And she's doing it with tremendous grace, effectiveness, and smarts, and with great diplomacy. Here she is explaining to the children of New Zealand that while the Easter Bunny is an essential worker, it might be a little bit difficult for him to get out right now. You'll be pleased to know um, that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. Um, But as you can imagine at this time, of course, they're going to be um, potentially quite busy at home with their their family as well and their own bunnies. And so um, I say to the children of New Zealand, if the Easter Bunny doesn't make it to your household, um, then uh, we have to understand that it's a bit difficult at the moment for the bunny to perhaps get everywhere. But um, I have a bit of an idea that maybe in lieu of the bunny being able to make it to your home, you can create your own Easter hunt for all the children in your neighbourhood. So if you're one of those homes that's had a teddy in your front window, um, maybe draw an Easter egg and pop it into your front window and help children in your neighbourhood with their own Easter egg hunt because the Easter bunny might not get everywhere this year. Jacinda Ardern is a leader with empathy, kindness, and compassion. And she's winning. And any place that wins is a victory for all of us. So keep your eye on New Zealand because we want to celebrate the winners. And she's winning. She's on the forward edge of the fight. And here in New York City, every night now at 7 p.m., we cheer our healthcare workers that are on the front line too. And our doctors, like Dr. Paul Hazer you heard last week, and all the others that are on the front line. Every night now at 7 p.m., this is what it sounds like in New York City. The hashtag is clap because we care. 
Try it wherever you are at 7 o'clock tonight. Go outside and clap. Even if you live in a rural area and you're the only person around, maybe someone will hear you or maybe it'll just give you a reason to feel united. But know that wherever you are, 7 o'clock local time, millions of people will also be there with you, honoring those that are on the front lines. As I've said it before, there's two kinds of people in the world right now. The people who get it and the people who don't. The people who realize that we're at war and the people who don't. If you're listening, you're probably the former. And if not, you will be by the end of this podcast, because this is a war, a war that is also now engulfing the VA, which very soon could become a disaster area. Now, I've been telling you to watch the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I've told you the VA and the Department of Defense can be the cavalry, or they can be a disaster, as we saw with the Roosevelt. And I've sounded the alarm for three or four episodes and on CNN and everywhere else. And I post updates daily on Twitter because there's now clearly a coronavirus problem inside VA facilities nationwide. It's gotten into the bloodstream of the entire national health care network. I think I might have Coronavirus has gotten into the bloodstream, and it's spreading. There's coronavirus in the VA system nationwide now, and problems for the VA nationwide, and they're starting to rupture. And here's the latest. 167 veterans have died at the VA, up 23 from the day before. And it includes two in Chicago, two in Boston, two in Detroit, three in New Jersey, six in New York State. That's in one day. But they've only done 29,000 tests nationally total. That's a pathetic increase of only about 1,300 a day. New York State does more than 10 times that number of tests daily. And in the latest report, 3,200 cases were reported in the VA system, up from 3,000 the day before. So 17% of new veterans tested by the VA are positive for COVID-19. 17%. If that's true, it's big news, and you probably won't hear it anywhere else. And the VA is now finally releasing some data about the number of deaths and cases among VA employees. It's questionable data, but they are reporting now seven employee deaths and 1,100 positive cases. One died in Ann Arbor, one died in Detroit, one died in Indianapolis, Houston, two in Reno, Nevada, and one in Shreveport, Louisiana. But that was according to AFGE, the union, because the VA didn't release it. And my sources say the numbers are even higher. So don't trust the VA numbers. And AFGE doesn't trust VA either. AFGE is the American Federation of Government Employees. It's the biggest union in the VA. And they filed an OSHA complaint, Occupational Safety and Health Administration complaint, with the Department of Labor, accusing the VA of violating worker health and safety rights and failing to take recommended actions to prevent the spread of coronavirus. AFGE's also been raising concerns about veterans' crisis line employees in Atlanta after management allegedly denied employees the ability to telework. AFGE said the VA is not taking the crisis seriously at the Veterans Crisis Line, and they're putting employees' lives in jeopardy. On any given shift, there are nearly 70 employees without any personal protective equipment working in cubicles that are less than six feet away, sharing a single working elevator. How can the VA honestly believe they are protecting their employees? This is what we hear across the country from workers on the front lines. It includes the National Nurses United, who are sounding the alarm too. 
They said that today they have VA-registered nurses caring for as many as five intensive care patient units at once. And nurses caring for patients don't have access to clean gloves, gowns, or N95 masks. And the National Nurses United represent 12,000 nurses at 23 different VA sites. And AFSCE is also sounding the alarm about employee exposure in Hampton, Virginia. Employees there say they don't have enough equipment to protect themselves or the veterans they serve. But VA? VA says everything is great. Here's a statement from the VA spokesperson. All VA facilities are equipped with essential items and supplies, and we are continually monitoring the status of those items to ensure a robust supply chain. VA facilities are using PPE in accordance with CDC guidelines, and all employees have appropriate personal protective equipment as per those guidelines. So VA says everybody has what they need. Well, then why are VA employees across the country saying otherwise? They're also having staffing problems. VA has 40,000 open positions. It was a GAO report about it sounding the alarm. And when confronted with this concern last month in Washington, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie said it was silly. And here's some more great news out of VA because I assume you weren't watching. They've also now delayed the launch of their $16 billion electronic health record system that was set to roll out last month. This time, the VA says it needs to delay it because of the pandemic. So that electronic record-keeping system sure would have come in handy when they needed to, for example, count the number of dead veterans, right? But they won't have it. The White House and VA Secretary Wilkie don't want to talk about any of this. Wilkie does almost no media. He wasn't seen in public for over a week. He pops up every once in a while to do a radio hit, usually on an extremely friendly, extremely conservative talk show, like WABC in New York's Bernie and Sid. Here's a clip. Before I get into any detail, let me tell you, we do have under this president, the highest trust and approval scores that VA has ever had. We're sitting at about 88.9%. We have nine and a half million veterans in our system. Why is that? Because this president has made this department the centerpiece of everything he does. He's, he's allowed me to present the two largest budgets in the history of VA. Uh, the budget I presented this year was $240 billion. Um, the other thing he's allowed me to do is basic reform. And, and Bernie, I know you've talked about this on, on, I know on your old show and then also on Fox. This president holds people accountable. We've released 8,000 people who weren't doing their jobs. That's unheard of in the federal yeah. government. And unlike what the opposition will say about this president, we're not talking about custodial people. We're talking about people who run hospitals, run networks, senior leaders in, in this building. And, and you know, you've been in the military. Once it gets out that there are no different spanks for different ranks, morale goes up. And, and I give all the credit to the president. He's let me go. Oh, yeah. Trump lets you go, all right. Right off a cliff. Wilkie was just doing what he normally does, spinning about how much VA is loved and trusted under Trump. By the way, any polling was done before coronavirus. He was talking about how big the VA budget is. Everybody raises the VA budget. And he always talks about how much he loves Trump. It's standard Wilkie talking points. And every night, there's a White House press conference. But despite being a member of the White House's COVID-19 task force, Wilkie was again missing from the latest White House press briefing. He's AWOL. Again. So the question every member of the press Every member of Congress and the American people should be asking, where is Wilkie? That's the hashtag. If led well and effectively utilized, the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense can be the cavalry for America in our war against the coronavirus. But right now, they're failing and they're falling behind and they're teetering on the edge of disaster. The VA may be headed for disaster, but there's another area 
with some good news about a disaster averted. Something that seemed to be the never-ending disaster? The race for president. And there's very big news. For the years since we started this show, I focused on how the Democrats eat their own. It's constant. It's nonstop. It never seems to end. And I even gave it its own theme music. The music comes from the zombie disaster show, The Walking Dead. It looks like one Walking Dead may finally have ended his march. And I'm very happy to report that Bernie Sanders, the longtime political cannibal-in-chief, is out. So hit that music one last time, Bill. So he's out. He's finally out. I worried he might never be out. I worried he might push it all the way to the convention and beyond, but he's out. And here was Bernie Sanders' message. Which takes me to the state of our presidential campaign. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. If I believed we had a feasible path to the nomination, I would certainly continue the campaign. But it's just not there. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign they cannot win, and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us. I played the whole thing because all of it was important. But most important, he's out. Now, maybe the Democrats can finally stop eating their own and focus all their tribes on their priority target, Trump. And I give Sanders some credit. He's putting the country and ultimately the interest of all those people who follow him ahead of himself. Sounds like he gets it now more than ever. And it's a good message that gives me hope for a generally united front, led most powerfully of all by Obama. Because if this is Game of Thrones and Joe Biden is Jon Snow, Joe Biden just got a very powerful new dragon coming online soon, Barack Obama. And Michelle Obama makes two. And you could even argue Sanders is another making three. So Biden just picked up three dragons that he's ready to activate. And Biden's resting up or getting ready in an attempt to protect himself from the coronavirus, which is one last disaster that must be avoided, Basement Biden continues. And this week, he talked with Basement Cuomo. I've been on your show a number of times, and I talk about restoring the soul of America. You're seeing the soul of America now. 
Look what Americans are doing. Average Americans, they're not asking anything about, they're not talking about divisions based on race or ethnicity or any of that malarkey. What they're talking about is they're reaching out and helping everyone. Look at these, look at these first responders. Without the equipment, they're going in and they're trying to save people's lives and they are saving lives. They're, go, they're doing things that are truly heroic. The person stacking the groceries on the shelf, the first responder pulling someone out of a car crash. All these things people are doing. This is the America we know. This is who we are. And that's the kind of message, tone, and grit people love about Biden. And if he can stay clear and stay disciplined and stay in a place where his campaign can help edit him and stay in a position to let Barack and Michelle and Bernie and Warren and Harris and Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Yang, let all the others do the heavy lifting, then Biden can win. Because now he's campaigning virtually. He doesn't have to run around. He doesn't have to shake any hands. He doesn't have to wear himself out, which is better for him less physically demanding, less variables, less risk. He can be like the Max Hedrum candidate for the next seven months. He'll never have to leave his house, which frees up the dragons. But Bernie Sanders is finally out, averting a disaster for the Democrats and the country. But there's plenty of fights still ahead. So get your popcorn ready, folks. We're a long way from over on this one. As Joe Biden seeks to replace the disaster of a president, the carnage of our war on the coronavirus roars on. But many continue to step up, to face the fear, to fight the pain, and to prevent family tragedies and personal disasters. I always say look for the helpers. It's a theme of this show, and especially now. This is the greatest time we'll ever see in our lives for helpers and for heroes. Lots of helpers are stepping up to help. And despite the early videos of kids partying at spring break, many young people are stepping up too. And that includes college students who are sewing face masks designed for the deaf and hard of hearing. College senior Ashley Lawrence noticed that many people started making their own face masks due to the shortage of medical supplies. But she didn't see masks designed for the deaf or the hard of hearing. So she decided to sew one herself. Lawrence wrote a post on Facebook and said, because of the shortage of masks, everyone started making their own. So I thought, why not make them for all? That's how we stay healthy at home. Lawrence is a senior at Eastern Kentucky University majoring in deaf education. And she posted photos of two face mask designs, both with transparent screens around the mouth. The transparent screens allow those who know how to lip read in the deaf and hard of hearing community to read the lips of the person wearing the mask. The screen also ensures people are better able to see the facial expressions of the wearer, which is really important for people using American Sign Language. But Ashley is not the only young person who's stepping up to be a helper. An amazing group has started in New York and has spread nationwide called Invisible Hands. And here's what their message says on their website. Hey there, we're Simone, Liam, and Healy, healthy 20-somethings in New York City who, like all of us in the New York City community, are devastated by what's happening with COVID-19. We created Invisible Hands to help aid and protect the New Yorkers for whom this novel coronavirus is most threatening. And this is their message. They said, these are chaotic times that require all hands on deck, as every day brings frightening new challenges. Now, more than ever, people across our medical, political, and economic leadership are being stretched in. And an incredible amount of work needs to be done, as so much of it is falling on mayors, governors, and doctors. As young, able-bodied citizens with time and compassion to share, we wanted to shoulder some of that responsibility within our communities. We're here to do the grunt work. 
while others focus on tackling the bigger issues. And so they've gathered a team of thousands of incredible volunteers who are working to make the uncertain times a little safer for those most at risk. And if you need assistance, they're here to help you. Their website is invisiblehandsdeliver.com. And listen to this. So we're picking up a delivery for a woman named Carol. Uh, She lives just a few blocks away from here, uh, and she's requested some salad stuff, some salad fixings, and some fruit. As I said, you know, produce is really important to people. And so I'm just going to pick that up and then deliver it to her apartment. A little action shot of me wiping my fingers. (laughs) People are able to submit requests online. Uh, for grocery delivery, pharmaceutical deliveries, whatever it is that they need from outside if they don't want to go out. And we send a volunteer to pick it up for them. We make sure to minimize physical contact, so all money is slid under the door, the groceries are left outside, they're they're sanitized before they're they're left. But we also want to keep that social aspect, so we have volunteers call the people, you know, check in with them, confirm their order. See you soon, thank you so much. And then say, hey, how's, how's your day going? How are you doing? You know, people are scared right now, and they're stressed, and they're looking for somebody to reach out, and this is one of those times when I remember that New York is such a small town and people are willing to look out for one another and have each other's backs. I think that unfortunately a crisis like this very often brings out the very best. I think what's extraordinary about what you're doing, Liam, is that it's focusing on really neighbor to neighbor. We've gotten a lot of outreach from people in a lot of different cities um, and so by the end of this week we hope to have chapters set up in, in a bunch of places around the country and potentially the world depending on interest. So there are an engaged group of volunteers that bring groceries and supplies to those in high-risk demographics. They focus primarily on the elderly, disabled, and immunocompromised, but they're available to help anyone in need. And they call themselves Invisible Hands because given what's currently known about COVID-19, they work to make their deliveries as contactless as possible. But don't worry, you can still talk on the phone with your volunteer, you can tell each other a little about yourselves, and in this incredibly isolating time, they're happy to provide some connection. The coronavirus is spreading fast, but so are the helpers, like invisible hands. When the storms hit and disasters strike, the helpers are out there. They come in all forms and all ages, and they're there for you to lean on. Lean on me when you're not As we continue to bond in the suck of war, we have to learn to lean on each other more than ever. And by leaning on each other, we can all be the heroes we need. The heroes that will lead us through our disasters, big and small, personal, national, spiritual, will push through to our VC day, our victory over coronavirus day. One day, this disaster will end and we will be champions. That day will come because of heroes. Heroes like Jake Wood. Jake Wood is a co-founder and CEO of Team Rubicon, a nonprofit organization that recruits, trains, and deploys military veterans to disaster zones around the world and within the United States. Since 2010, Team Rubicon has scaled nearly 100,000 volunteers and deployed them to some of the worst catastrophes of the century. They're a rapidly growing social enterprise, and Team Rubicon is known for its unique corporate culture and its ability to mobilize teams at a moment's notice. I've known Jake from the beginning. As a sergeant in the Marine Corps, Jake deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a scout sniper and earned the Navy Marine Commendation Medal. He's a leading veterans advocate, 
He joined me in meeting Michelle Obama at the White House. He's briefed President Obama on veterans issues, and he's met with former Presidents Bush and Clinton, and he's testified before the Senate to improve mental health care for returning veterans. He's also appeared in major media, including MSNBC, CNN, NBC, ABC, U.S. News World Report, Fox. He's penned an op-ed for the New York Times. And in 2014, Crown published his book, Take Command, Lessons in Leadership. Jake's answered the call to serve again and again and again. And when disaster strikes, Jake is the guy you want to see running into it and the guy who might motivate you enough to follow him. This might be the bat signal of a podcast that inspires you to action, to turn your paralysis into action, to take control of your tempo rather than having the virus dictate it for you. Jake Wood was an offensive lineman at Wisconsin. O-linemen are the least glorious players on the entire football team. They're often nameless, faceless, gritty, selfless leaders, but critical leaders who do their jobs so others can shine. The true American spirit in wartime was a position on the football field. It wouldn't be a flashing running back or a look-at-me wide receiver or a shit-talking defensive back or an all-pro quarterback. No. The hard-working spirit of America is an offensive lineman, the guy or gal who watches your blind side and makes everyone else around him or her better. That's the kind of leader Jake Wood is, and that's the kind of movement he's built. A movement of hardworking, brave, tough, selfless grinders who do the dirty work and get the job done and win the game. They're the ones that can also handle the pain, the stress, the monotony of the rebuilding that's needed after a disaster. And in this episode, we're running into the sounds of the guns. We're running into the flames. We're running into the virus to take it on, to beat it, and to move past it. We're not afraid. And we're bringing a powerful storm of the four eyes to devastate the virus and bring the power. Power we can lean on, even when there's a disaster. You just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. It's a wildfire of integrity. It's a tornado of information. It's an earthquake of impact. And it's a flood of inspiration. Disasters happen, but life, society, and our collective future is determined by how we respond to it, how we come together, how we lean in, and how we lean on each other. As the world war wages against the virus, it's like a storm washing over our entire existence. It pounds you. It tires you. It scares you. It wakes you up in the night. It can beat you down. It forces you to hunker down, but we can face it together. We can lean on each other. And in the end, that storm can make you tougher, make you more grateful and clear the skies. Every storm eventually ends. If you can endure it and lean on others and let them lean on you, you can emerge to a new day when you can start again. Fate whispers to the warrior, you cannot withstand the storm. And the warrior whispers back, I am the storm. We're deep in the storm right now, but this too will pass. But first, we need to band together, buckle down, keep our focus, and of course, stay vigilant. Welcome to the storm. We'll face it together, and we'll be stronger together, leaning on each other to weather the storm and come out on the other side. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 54. Oh, oh.
Americans around the country and around the globe. It is a very important time for all of us. And we've got a very important guest, a guy I've known for a long time that I've been looking for an opportunity to bring on to this show. And there's nobody who I can think of who's more of a man of the moment. Uh, every guest I bring is important, inspiring, and iconic. This guy is, is becoming the latter and is definitely the first two. Uh, I am very, very pleased and, and thankful to have joining us on this episode, the great and powerful Jake Wood. <laughs> hey, how, how you doing, Paul? <laughs> you like that, uh, man? That was, that was a lot. That was a lot. Well, but, it uh, is, I appreciate the kind words. It is, it is worthwhile and it is, it is justified. Um, first off, thank you for taking the time. You are more than almost anybody I know deep in the fight right now. Uh, on the front lines of what I think is a war against the coronavirus. But you're a guy who's seen many different kinds of war, many different kinds of adversity. Um, but on a very basic level, uh, I want to thank you for doing it. I want to thank you for taking the time away from your troops and to be here with us and just ask you, you know, how you doing, man? How you doing right now being at the tip of the spear and in the middle of all this? Yeah, you know, I'm holding up well. Um, <clears throat> it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. This is... Um, so unprecedented, obviously for everyone. It's unprecedented, uh, you know, for the country, um, for most companies. It's certainly unprecedented for ours. And you know, even though our entire organization is built around responding to disasters, and it's what I've been doing for for over a decade, this is just different. You know, trying to manage a disaster. You know, you mentioned you know taking some time away from the troops on the front lines. Well, I haven't left my house in three weeks. You know, I've never been in a in a leadership position where I haven't been able to walk up to uh, you know the folks that uh, are in my organization and put my hand on their shoulder and and tell them good job or to see the work you know firsthand. So it's been you know it's been interesting, um, but it, it's also been uh, you know it's been inspiring. We we have seen people jump into this in ways that I don't think we ever imagined. Um, you know, our organization, you know, could, could pivot in, 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 in that way. So it's been, it's been interesting, man, to say the least, yeah, it's right? been interesting, but we're doing well and the family's safe. So, you know, at, for the time being, you know, we're, we're just grateful that our family hasn't been impacted and our hearts just go out to the people who's have. Well, my best to your amazing wife and, and daughter and to see you, um, you know, le you lean into everything you do. And leaning into fatherhood seems really natural for you. And it's been inspiring to watch and, and to see you grow as, yeah. a, as a dad and as a leader. You were, you were, you kept telling me for a long time, I had to get into the dad business, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I trailed after you by a couple of years, but you were right. It's, uh, it changes everything immediately. Uh, it's, that's been, you know, she's 18 months old now. And, uh, you know, everything you told me that would happen uh, has happened. So I should have taken your advice earlier. Well, I got the same advice from others, so I was just happy to pass it down. And a lot of us, frankly, who've been, you know, overseas in deployment and then deep in the fight, a lot of us had families later, right? We mm -hmm. kind of put that on the back burner and had kids later. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm just happy that you are, you and your amazing wife are, are making more uh, people <laughs> who can join all the good fights that you're a part of. But yeah. every dad needs a break. Every mom needs a break. So I got to ask you, what is your adult beverage of choice, Jake Wood? <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's interesting. Uh, you 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 find yourself uh, working from home. You got a lot of idle hours, <laughs> even in the midst of a pandemic. So, I've been reaching for my beverage of choice more frequently than I probably should be. But um, I'm a I'm a sucker for a, a good session IPA. Uh, you know, I'm a big beer drinker. I'm not a beer snob, but I'm a beer drinker. Uh, and then uh, you know, I like a good craft bourbon. 
Um, been drinking a lot of of Michters lately, which uh, which I've uh, I've been enjoying. And um, Costco is even running a, a special on uh, Johnny Walker Blue Label. So I I don't often drink Scotch, but when you see a great price on something like that, you gotta you gotta treat yourself, I guess. There you go. There you go. I love it. I love it. Well, I mean, you were uh, at one point. A, uh, a gigantic offensive lineman. For folks who don't know, you're a pretty big dude, but now mm-hmm. you look almost like a movie star. You got, you know, some cool facial hair and gray hair. You, you look very oh, The good. wife <laughs> hates the beard. I grow a weak beard too, and she just hates it. So now it's, it's just a game of, you know, who's going to give in first. Between it's kind of a Johnny Depp beard you got going on. Yeah, there. I know. It's, 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 like, it's like when you're overseas in Iraq or Afghanistan and you grow your mustache out for the first time and you see those guys struggling <laughs> through their first mustache. This is, that's what this beard is to me. But you used to be an offensive lineman. At one point, weren't you like at or above 300 pounds? Yeah, so I played, I played O-line at Wisconsin, uh, and most people are surprised to, to learn. I, you know, I was actually, if you can believe it, I was undersized for a Wisconsin offensive tackle at 290 pounds. Um, you know, so, yes, a mountain of a, of a human being. They wanted me at 315. Um, I spent one week over 300 pounds, and I just couldn't sustain it. So I, I usually played around 290. So that's where all that beer comes in handy, right? The beer helps yeah. you pack on the pounds. Yeah, you know, it's a steady diet of beer and mac and cheese when you're up there in Madison. <laughs> well, you're burning calories like, like a mofo now because you guys are on the front line. But I asked this of, of every guest as well. You were growing <clears> up in Wisconsin before you ended up on this trajectory where you play D1 football, you end up in the Marine Corps, and now you know, you're, you're leading the fight, really not just for the country, for the globe. But I want to go way, way back in the way, way back machine and ask, ask you, Jake Wood, what was your first car? My first car. Uh, my first car was a 1987 two-door Chevy Blazer, two-tone. I don't think it was two-tone rolling off the factory uh, line. I think it was two-tone because the bottom had rusted out at some point prior to me buying it. So yeah, that was how the fab shop repainted it. But uh, I loved that car. I ended up, I ended up uh, getting into a car crash in it on my way to the high school once and put my face through the windshield, which is yeah, that's how you get a face like this, Paul. Um, and I was an idiot. I, you know, I, I'm always religious about wearing my seatbelt. This is honest to God, the one time I can ever recall in my life, I didn't wear my seatbelt and some idiot tried to pull in front of me and I T-boned him. Um, and, uh, put my, put my head through the windshield. Uh, and that was the end of that car. <laughs> wow. What color was the two-tone? It was rust on the bottom and something else on top. Red on top, black on bottom. Wow. Great. I loved it, man. I That's stylish, it. man. And how bad did you get hurt when your face hit the windshield? Uh, you know, it was, you know, I got taken to the ER. Um, I was, I lost consciousness for a little bit, not long, but, uh, you know, it was, it happened in a neighborhood where a bunch of my high school friends lived. So they actually heard the crash, ran outside, pulled me out of the car, which maybe wasn't advisable. I don't know. And then, you know, I got carted off in the ambulance. <laughs> it was it was a scene. <laughs> it was a scene. So maybe that sets you up for the life you're on now, right? Where you are know, at man. the scene of, of, of crisis. You're at the, you're, you're the helper. Like we talk a lot in this show about Mr. Rogers and, and we say, look for the helpers. And mm-hmm. ever since I met you, you've been a helper. The first time we met, I think was during the snow apocalypse during storm the hill. I think it was, was it, it was. 2010? 2010. It was, it was the year it was right. The week and the year that the saints won the Super Bowl. Yep. And um, our mutual friend, the great Clay Hunt, uh, was there for, for Storm the Hill. And you were a late addition. Yep. We used to always say that like, we loved Clay so much that we let him bring Jake. 
Yeah, right? exactly. And, I was just plus one. <laughs> you were just plus one. And uh, we all bonded in the suck there. It was, mm-hmm. it was an apocalypse. We were advocating for veterans. We had vets from all over the country, many of whom are now involved with Team Rubicon in their communities. But you, you know, in that, in that week or so we were together, there were two blizzards. We were trapped in a shitty DC hotel. It kind of felt like The Shining. But we were all bonding. And you had this idea for Team Rubicon. It was just coming together. You guys had just got back from Haiti. Um, and that was part of it was that Clay said to me, you know, we just got back from Haiti. This guy's amazing. You got to get him on the team. And I remember you showing me the sketch of the team Rubicon logo, I think on a napkin or something. You told yeah, me yeah. your sister had made it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But can you yeah. tell for folks who are new to this, can you tell the origin story of team Rubicon and how it's led you to be built for this moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a long story. I'll, I'll try to make it brief. You know, I, you, you mentioned it. I, after, after Wisconsin, I went to the Marine Corps. I served four years uh, from 2005 to 2009. And, and in that time, I, I served with a, a guy named Clay Hunt, who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. We both knew well. Um, you know, Clay, were, Clay and I were really close. So I got out of the Marine Corps a couple months after Clay, late 2009. And the, uh, you know, 60 days after my EAS, I'm sitting around waiting for these grad school applications to come back. And the Haiti earthquake happened. And I sit there, you know, I, I don't have a job because I'm hoping to go to grad school in the fall. And, you know, I'm going to kind of take some time and bum around for the next couple of months. And, uh, you know, as I'm watching the earthquake unfold, I just feel the urge to go down, you know, and, and you know, like, a, like any 25-year-old Marine Corps veteran would. Um, and so I called Clay and I said, Clay, you know, you want to go to Haiti with me? And uh, I swear to God, he said... Yeah, like sure, you know, I you know, I've got school, but yeah, I mean, I can take a week, you know, but why 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 Haiti? Let's go to a nice Caribbean island. Let's go to Jamaica <laughs> or the Dominican Republic or something and hadn't turned on the news and didn't know about the earthquake. So I filled him in. He actually could not go cuz that weekend he had a one of his uh family members was getting married. So, you know, I ended up getting a, a group of guys together and we went down to Haiti. Um, just a couple days after the earthquake and, you know, the, the, we started doing all this stuff. We, we, we kind of, we crossed the border from the Dominican Republic. It was eight of us originally. And then, you know, we we're doing mostly medical work. Um, we had a special forces doctor with us. We had two emergency room physicians, a couple of firefighter EMTs. You know, I, I had, you know, medical training, you know, I say that with kind of air quotes on it, like just like any Marine infantryman would had medical training. And, uh, you know, for 20 days, you know, Team Rubicon was down there. That's what we called our small team. Um, And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And we realized that all we were doing was, you know, repurposing what we'd been taught in the Marine Corps and in the Army and on the other branches of service to help people in those moments. And so we came back, you know, right before I met you and, uh, you know, cocksure and full of, you know, confidence and uh, said that we were going to build the best disaster response organization in the world had no idea what that meant. Um, and, uh, you know, but I think we were foolish enough to try. So we, uh, we set out to do it and, you know, it, it's been an interesting journey. That was a decade ago. Um, you know, the organization has about 120,000 registered volunteers today. Um, in any given year, about 20 to 25,000 of those will, uh, be active in some capacity, responding to disasters, training for disasters, running mitigation projects in communities to help uh, stave off the impact of disasters. 
and it's been it's been really remarkable to see. Um, and you know, we've we've had our bumps and bruises along the way as as entrepreneurs, and you know, like any startup. Um, but it's been really incredible just to see the idea take shape. This idea that um, you know we as taxpayers spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year training our our men and women to to fight. We give them incredible skill sets. They gain this unbelievable experience overseas. And then when they come back, we don't ask anything of them anymore. And I know you've been on the front lines of that fight. You know, we don't even do simple things like credential them, you know, with civilian opportunities when, when they get out. I mean, it's just, there's so many absurdities in that process, but yeah, we tried to tap into one of them. And, um, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you fast forward to the present day, um, you know, we do all sorts of disasters. We've responded to everything from hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, wildfires. You know, we've even, we have responded to infectious disease outbreaks before, even as recently as last year. But I don't know that we ever thought that we would be, you know, facing the situation we do today with COVID-19. It is, from an emergency management perspective, it is so unprecedented. It is you know, the, the chaos of 9-11, you know, it's tenfold that just because of its breadth and depth uh, across all systems of, you know, government, the economy, uh, the healthcare system. Um, it's just, you know, nobody, you know, from the administrator of FEMA down through me down to, you know, a local community emergency response team really could have anticipated what, what this has happened. But but like I said, we've, we've had 120,000 volunteers and, you know, early in this crisis, we, and we started tracking it when it was uh, coming through China. You know, we have a, a planning section at our, our national operations center in Dallas, and this is what they do. They monitor situations around the globe for crises unfolding. And, and, you know, we spin into action when opportunities arise. So when this thing was in China, we, we will never be able to operate in China as a disaster response organization by, by nature of, being former military U S military veterans. Right. So right. we, we've tried before, you know, they've had earthquakes. We've, we've tried to work through the embassies to get access. It'll never happen. So we knew we weren't going to respond to coronavirus in Wuhan. Um, but we knew it was going to you know jump the borders, but we thought it would probably be, you know, kind of relegated to Asia, Southeast Asia, um, you know, there'd be some, you know, it, it would of course get passed and, you know, around the globe just because of you know how global a, a country China is, but we never anticipated it becoming this pandemic. So we were watching it thinking we might deploy our medical teams to Thailand or Vietnam or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, as you know, it just spread like a prairie fire. And so we started positioning team Rubicon very early, um, to, to pivot everything we do into the fight put all of our medical providers on alert, activated basically all of our volunteer leaders in all of our cities across the country and kind of braced for it. Um, And been in the fight since nearly day one. I mean, I know you're at ground zero there in New York. I'm, I'm in LA, which we've kind of been bracing for it for the last month and it hasn't really hit here yet. I think we, we were good at taking some early measures and learning from, the mistakes that New York made, but, um, yeah, we're not, we're not through it yet. And you guys, I, I'd love for you to go a step deeper because I think, you know, I saw you here in, in the tri-state area after hurricane Sandy, and I've seen you on small tornadoes, floods, everything all across the country. And, uh, we share, you know, a, a mentor and friend in general Petraeus 
And I remember as the organization was growing, I said, man, you know, are they, are they going to have enough, um, are they going to have enough veterans? And, and early on, he said, I don't know if we're going to have enough disasters. And now it's flipped, right? And there's yeah. so many disasters. There's so many things you guys could respond to and you continue to respond over and over again. And for folks who don't understand, these are folks often who, who, who volunteer with Team Rubicon who have civilian jobs or are students and they go on deployments, right? It can be mm-hmm. for a week or a couple of months, right? So I would love for you to maybe give us a, an example of one of your volunteers. And then also, if you can shape the battlefield as you see it. I know you're in over 70 locations now around the country, and you're doing um, medical testing, as I understand, for the first time around COVID-19. So give us, give us a personal example of what your people are like, because I think that that's a tremendous source of inspiration and hope right now. You've said before, you know, you're there for people on their worst days. And, and the Team Rubicon gray shirts come walking through the door, and it's like an angel coming through the door is the way people describe it. But give us an example of one of your frontline leaders, and then if you can, you know, shape what your current response looks like on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to even just pinpoint what's the archetype for a Team Rubicon volunteer, because it, it's, it's amazing how diverse um, the, the group is. I mean, in particularly from almost, you know, from a, like a socioeconomic perspective, you know, we've got... We've got volunteers who are, um, you know, we've got a guy named Todd in the, in the New Jersey area, Coast Guard veteran, um, who, you know, is a, a senior marketing executive at like numerous startups that have been acquired. Like the guy just crushes it at life, uh, but, but there's something missing. And so he, he, he donates over the years. I mean, he's donated thousands and thousands of hours just to in an administrative capacity, helping us to organize volunteers, organize events, organize training. Um, you know, then we have volunteers who, you know, are, are struggling with, with, you know, being underemployed. You know, we have, uh, volunteers, uh, who were medically discharged, medically retired from the military who, you know, maybe haven't found work since leaving the army or the Marine Corps, but who still are looking for a way to be of value to society. I mean, the military said, you no longer are of value to us. You know, here's a monthly paycheck. Good luck with life. You know, that doesn't really sit well with a lot of these folks. So it's just, you know, it's such a diverse group of people. And when they get together, it's, it's so crazy because you'll have, you know, you'll have this liberal, you know, uh, New Englander, sleeping on a cot next to, you know, the deepest crimson red state, you know, vet and you know, politics doesn't enter the equation. You know, they might talk about it, but they don't get mad about it. They agree to disagree. The only thing that matters is that they're here. They're, they are there to help people. You know, it's, it's, it's cliche, but it's just like a platoon. Um, so, you know, we, we, we activated them for COVID-19 and we, we didn't really have a playbook for this, right? We had a medical capability that we deploy internationally. We've really never deployed it in the continental U.S. We deployed medical teams to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. That was the closest we'd ever done, been to doing something medically here in the U.S., but we just launched a 250 bed hospital in Santa Clara, California, that's already seeing patients. It's a federal medical station. We're on the verge of launching another federal medical station in Navajo Nation uh, in Arizona. You know, one of the most vulnerable populations in the U.S. Our, you know, our tribal lands are always forgotten, always left behind in circumstances like this. We're running a mobile testing site uh, with a healthcare system in North Carolina. That mission will probably continue to expand. 
And then, you know, we're running operations and logistics in partnership with groups like Feeding America and Meals on Wheels for, you know, at last count, I think over 60 major food banks and food bank networks all across the U.S. One of the things we saw early was that, you know, food banks, which we've never done anything with food or food security in the past, they rely a lot on volunteers, but their volunteer demographic is the age 65 and over. Mm. And so because of their risk profile relative to COVID-19, they're not coming out. And so these, these, these food bank operations are just shutting down. So we've kind of stepped into that void, built uh, kind of some hasty playbooks for how we do that. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other element that we're engaging in is, you know, what we've really developed over the last decade is an expertise for bringing order to chaos. You know, we, we, we have systems and process. We, we operate on the incident command system and any, any, you know, firefighter or EMS person that's listening to the show knows exactly what ICS is, you know, as a nonprofit, we've become experts in that. And so, yeah, Can you explain these, that, Jake? Can you explain what the ICS is for people who are less yeah, familiar to it? And why yeah, so I know, yeah, so I, I, I know you were, you were, you know, on the ground, uh, you know, after 9-11, like on the ground at Ground, ground Zero. If you, can, if you can imagine that when 9-11 happened, all these agencies responded, you know, the FBI, um, the military, the New York Police Department, the New York Fire Department, like the EPA, you know, was there because of the environmental concerns. And none of them operated on the same emergency kind of command system. They, they all used different protocols. They didn't even, you know, they had no interoperability. So it was just a, it was a different radios, like different, different radio, radio frequencies. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so ICS was, was one of the first things that the new department of Homeland security, which was formed after nine 11, they implemented nationwide and they, they kind of pulled it from the wildland firefighting system in Canada, or, I'm sorry, in California. So it had already been in play since I think the 70s, you know, the California wildland firefighting system just operates like a, you know, like a just really, really smooth. And so they, they pulled that up, made some tweaks and they, and they implemented it. Any, any federal, state or local agency has to be compliant in it. Nonprofits like Team Rubicon don't, but, you know, in the military, interoperability is the key. Like NATO works because I can call for fire from a French, you know, uh, fighter plane just as easily as a U.S. one. So, um, you know, that's what that's how we wanted to design it. Mm. And what's interesting, if you think about it, you know, practice kind of makes perfect in a situation like this. And so, if you're a if you're a county level emergency manager, particularly in a small county, you you can go a twenty year career and never see a disaster. Now you'll, you'll use ICS for like the annual Thanksgiving day parade, right. but you, you'll never actually implement it in the chaos of this type of situation. Last year, we responded to a hundred disasters, right? Last year alone. So we have this cadre of, of emergency managers who have this breadth and depth of experience that is, is almost unparalleled across mm-hmm. the country. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest requests that we're getting right now is for, our top volunteer leaders to deploy into emergency operations centers just to basically advise and assist them in how they're managing the operations of this response. So, um, Jake, I want, I want to pull all the way back and look at the national response because you are, you know, an evolution of 
um, I, I don't know, like the old days before there were real fire departments when people used to like come together and pass buckets to put out fires, right? Like you mm-hmm. guys are the evolution of almost like the volunteer firefighter spirit in America. But now, you know, you're, you're more effective in some ways than the Red Cross, right? You guys are kind of like the next generation of something like the Red Cross. Maybe I'm, I'm categorizing it wrong, but I really think people look to you to be as a social entrepreneur, you are really pushing um, the boundaries of what a nonprofit can be, what an American-based nonprofit can be. Now there's Team Rubicon Global, which is an expansion of your idea on a global level. But I want you to, put, to pull it down because people think disaster in the U.S., they think FEMA, right? And, and I hope that whoever is president, you know, come next year, that, that you're at the top of their shortlist for director of FEMA. I don't know if there's anybody that's better qualified. And I've talked to you, but I know you're shaking your head. But, you know, anybody who's elected president would be smart to pull you in and listen to you because you know what the hell you're doing. But can you evaluate the current response system? Why does it work? Why does it not work? And, and FEMA in particular, unless you feel like there's a more front line, now we know the Department of Defense will be a lead element. The VA will be a lead element. Local hospitals will be a lead element. But you can, can you kind of assess the national response? And if you were advising the president, what would you tell him to do? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what we're really seeing right now is the limitations of uh, a federalist system right? And um, disasters inherently are states' issues. So, you know, the, the, the concept that FEMA is this, um, this silver bullet that can come in and solve these problems, it's kind of a, it's, 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 it's the wrong perspective to have. You know, states, the, the way the system is designed is that states um, are responsible for their citizens. They typically engage in mutual aid agreements with neighboring states uh, so that they can have cross-border support when that makes sense. And FEMA really only steps in in extreme circumstances uh, in a, within a very narrow scope. They're, they are there to move money and in some cases provide advisory services. FEMA was never designed uh, nor is it staffed and resourced to be able to provide, you know, what is necessary today. And, and frankly, like you, you can't really design a system to handle what's happening today. I mean, right. you know how, you know how floods are, they're categorized as like thousand year events or 500 year events. You, know, you can't really design uh, a system to fully withstand what would be a thousand year flood. It's, it's impractical. You can take steps against it, but you know, the, 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 the flood insurance program that FEMA operates, it only operates against a 100-year flood scenario, right? This pandemic is a, you know, I don't know. I guess you can look at the Spanish flu in 1918 and say, well, that was 100 years ago. So maybe right. it's a 100-year event, but it's really hard to say. And, and I don't know that you design a system for this. That being said, what's needed? We need to, you know, the, the call to federalize the acquisition process early was a major miss by the federal government. To, to not implement. I mean, the fact that we have states today competing against one another and competing against their own federal government on bids for critical life-saving equipment is just, I mean, it's, it's absurd on its face. And, and there, were, there were, you know, steps that they could take to immediately, you know, uh, put, it, put an end to that. And the result is not only are we paying more for supplies than we should be, but th- there are delays in that process. And it's creating, you know, this element of uh, us versus them when we right. should all be on one team, right? Yeah. We're, we're artificially creating this division in this competition when, you know, we shouldn't be. And, and what you're seeing now is this incredible 
um, this incredible, I don't know what the right word is, collaboration or, or um, um, thoughtfulness where you're seeing states like Washington, who may have already peaked and borne the brunt of it, shipping their ventilators to New York State. I mean, imagine being a governor and being responsible for your own constituents there in, in the state of Washington. You don't know that it's over yet. You think it is. And you, 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 you suspect you have an excess capacity of ventilation equipment. And you, you, you have the choice. Do I ship 400 or do I keep them here just in case right. I need them? And if I ship them and I do end up needing them, and even one of my citizens dies as a result of that decision, did, did, did I do the right thing or did I let my people down? But yeah. you, what you're seeing is people are, are rising to this with the mentality of, no, we're all Americans. It's not Washington versus New York. This is a whole of America response. We have to act that way. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of framing up. It's almost like, you know, Jake, you and I, I think maybe we're in Iraq at the same time, but it would be like if I was in the Army and you were in the Marine Corps and we were fighting over ammunition. In the well, there was, never, there was never a competition over ammunition. You guys had it, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we also had the brains and you guys didn't. Well, you had, you, yeah, you had everything. <laughs> but I, I imagine that, right? Imagine the 82nd Airborne and, and you know, 1st Marine Division are, are competing for ammunition right for rounds for our m4s and m16s as we're engaging in fallujah or someplace like that right right? it's absurd and i think what you're seeing from those governors is that teamwork that idea that you know what new york needs it now but i know if the wave shifts back that new york's going to help me later right and i I give the the governors a, a lot of credit in that regard. But I've also heard you, you know, you guys are operating in California right now. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Like I'm going to pause because I want folks who are not in a place like New York to understand that sirens are going by. We're recording in my, I'm recording in my house. Sirens are going by constantly. Like just since we've been talking, I think three sirens have gone by my house just to give people a sense of the pace. Um, and, I, and I think it really does you know, feel a bit like a combat environment. If you, every time mm-hmm. you leave your house, it's like leaving the wire. People who are frontline workers like Dr. Paul Hazer that I spoke to in the last episode, and now you, you're, you're a frontline person. But I heard you talk about um, the restrictions in California. And it feels like one of the biggest enemies is, for you guys is the bureaucracy, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to get in the fight. Right, being like things like authorization or certification, barriers that maybe made sense at some point, maybe didn't, but now have to be busted open because it's extreme times. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I ask you, you know, maybe to break that down, but more importantly, I want to ask you the same question I ask of, of all our guests. Jake Wood, what makes you angry? <laughs> um, oh boy, a lot of things these days. I, you know, first thing that jumps to my mind is apathy. You know, this uh, this, this sense in some parts of the country that you're getting, which is, you know, this isn't my problem. You know, even, even just when people early on were saying, well, I'm young, you know, I'm not at risk, so I'm going to go out, you know, not having, even when they were fully aware that they could become, you know, a threat vector, carrying the virus, transmitting to other people who were at risk, but unable to, to put the, the needs of the whole above themselves. And, you know, if you've been in the disaster business long enough, you know, like I have, you know, you, you see apathy uh, frequently and it's good because you also get to see, you know, the opposite. You see amazing empathetic uh, leaders and citizens doing the right thing, regardless of personal cost. Um, you know, I think that the, the other thing that's making me angry right now is indecision. Um, mm. You know, we've seen it. We've seen it in a lot of, we've seen it at the federal level. We've seen it in numerous States um, you know, we've seen it, uh, you know, at a county level, us personally, Team Rubicon, you know, we are, we are running into uh, kind of the, 
you know, indecision, call it bureaucracy in some, in some regards, like we've run into the buzzsaw of bureaucracy in so many situations where people are allowing very simple problems to stand in the way of very critical and large scale solutions, right? Mm. You know, some examples like, you know, we had, um, uh, we were establishing a facility. I'm not going to like call out specific, you know, officials or counties or cities, but we were setting up a location, um, at the request of HHS <clears throat> and we put 33 medical providers against it, you know, and, and these are people that are sh in short supply, like New York city could use those 33 medical providers right about now. I know you mm -hmm. know that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for 96 hours, Every 12 hours, it was, it was something else that as this facility was standing by, ready to accept patients, they were finding reasons not to accept patients. Oh, an argument about who was going to pay for it, the county or the city. Who gives a shit? Like, we will figure that out on the back end. And I, and I, and I promise you that we're going to come to the right decision on the, on the back side of this. You know, uh, the, um, uh, the, who was going to have the, the, the county would not let the fire department, the fire department refused to service fire watch for the facility, for the county. And we were like, we just had a 12 hour delay for this. We're freaking vets. There, if there's one thing we know how to do, it's stand fucking fire watch, right? Like, give me a glow belt and a moonbeam, and I got it, you know? And, 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 and it was, it was seriously like that, that, that single thing yeah. as simple as that, which is important. Like you yeah. want to be safe, you know, you want to be up to code, but you know, like clean, neat solutions and rules and bureaucracy. Like, you know, I, I said it on a, a news program recently, like those are made for peacetime. And, mm -hmm. and when, if, if, if we want to use the analogy that this is a wartime environment, some people get upset about using that analogy. I don't, right. This is, this is, this is chaos. Lives are on the line. You have the fog of war. Rules are made for peace. You have to, you have to use a different playbook in this situation. You have mm. to do what's right, regardless of what the, you know, the, the rules say. Mm. And I think history is going to look back on leaders in this situation, and they're not going to judge kindly the people who played by the rules. Because mm. that's going to mean that that, that led to, to lives being lost. Mm. <clears throat> How do you get that cough in there? Um, but thank you for, for breaking that down. Let me, let me ask you another, another, another point here, Jake. I mean, you have also, you, you are, I think, the epitome of a social entrepreneur because you're solving problems, but you're doing it at scale. And, you know, I learned from Bill Drayton and Ashoka and others that social entrepreneurs are people who build solutions to the world's problems, mm -hmm. right? If you were a, a tech entrepreneur, you'd be, you know, hiding out on your island in, in Bali right now with, 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 uh, with a bunch of luxury cars, but you're in the nonprofit space where your reward for success is more work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you're never going to get your stock options in cash out. Um, yeah. Can you talk about, you have been extremely successful in, in two areas that I want to ask you to talk about. One is building an organization which required fundraising and required mm -hmm. operations and execution. And on a parallel track, the technology component. You're almost a technology company in the yeah. way you network these volunteers and the way you've built platforms. You know, you're, you're, everything you do online is, is fantastic. Even, you know, your, your photographs, the engagement, the way you allow people to be a part of your mission, I think is, is probably underappreciated. It's not this, this, that you guys are tough. You're also smart. And that yeah. is, is, I think, one of the best representations of our generation of veterans. You are improvising, adapting, overcoming, but at scale, 
in a way that uh, I don't know if a nonprofit's grown as fast as you have over the last couple of years. And I see you doing partnerships with Major League Baseball and and musicians and and at the same time understanding the the genius of marketing, right? The gray shirts. Mm-hmm. You guys are mm-hmm. called the gray shirts. That's you guys. Now they know mm-hmm. that if they see the gray shirts coming over the hill, that's Team Rubicon. So can you talk about your vision? Uh, and your lessons learned as an entrepreneur and building, I don't want to call it a business, you know, a social impact machine. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a broad, it's a broad question. I, you know, I think I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always had that itch. Um, you know, I was doing entrepreneurial things growing up. I, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I wanted to get into that entrepreneur scene, you know, that we call it the tech scene. But, I, you know, I was a sniper, right? I, I always joke, like, it's not like I was going to go walk up to, you know, Twitter's front door and be like, hey, you should really <laughs> hire me. I got this amazing skill set. Um, now, I mean, obviously, I knew I, I had something to offer, but it, it just didn't translate. So the fun thing about TR is that it's been able to scratch that itch. And, you know, I think most people have this really antiquated perspective of what a nonprofit is. And, and we call it like your grandma's nonprofit. You know, they think of all these other charities that are out there. And, you know, they're, they're outdated. They, you know, they don't rely on tech. Well, they're not innovative. They're not edgy. They're not pushing the envelope. They're just kind of existing and they're doing good work, but they, they just kind of exist. They persist. Right. And I was never going to be satisfied doing that. You know, if, if that was going to be the tact that we were going to take with team Rubicon, like then I was just going to kind of ascend onto the board of directors, let somebody else run it. And I was going to go scratch that entrepreneurial edge somewhere else. Um, so it's, you know, it's been fun. It had, it's been a grind though, man. I know my, my, my brother, my, my fellow social entrepreneur, I know, you know, the grind, you know, those, those, those nights you, you lay awake staring at the ceiling, wondering if you're going to make payroll. Like we've been there. It hasn't just been, you know, success after success. The number of times that, you know, I've had to walk in front of the team and say, Hey guys, we're, we're delaying bonuses this year. You know, we just, we can't, we can't make it work or Hey guys, like we got to go into austerity measures. Um, but we always had a plan and we always had a vision that we believed in. So yeah, we, we, you know, we took an approach where we wanted to be different from the beginning. We, we wanted to innovate both kind of in our, our voice and our, and our marketing, right. Take a bit, bit of an edgier approach. And, you know, and, you know, I'll, I'll acknowledge that, you know, IAVA was a leader in this space. You know, you, 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 the way you guys were able to position yourself alongside major corporate brands, like, Early on, we we looked to the activations you were doing with Harley, the activations you were doing with Miller Coors. Like those are cool brands, and we thought to ourselves, like, why are we going to walk around with a tin cup in our hand, asking for five dollars at a time, when we can go and do a, a million dollar partnership with like cool iconic brands that add you know all this other lift? And you know, the reality is, you can do both, and and so that's what we've done and had some success. The technology stuff has been fun too, you know. Um, we, we really see ourselves, you know, you kind of hit the, hit it on the head when you said we're almost a technology company. We, we think of ourselves as a platform company, right? So your Airbnb, your Uber, what do those companies do, right? What they've created is a marketplace that is a frictionless environment where resources that, you know, have excess capacity or like idle resources and assets, like a car or an extra bedroom, can find a consumer that is looking for that resource, right? Before there was no, there was no marketplace for that transaction to happen. And they created that, that frictionless experience. Well, we think of, you know, our resource are the, the latent uh, potential of these veterans sitting around in communities who many of them, not all, want to serve their community in some capacity. 
And we've created a marketplace in our, you know, continuing to create and refine where we can now connect them to that demand signal, communities that are, you know, experiencing a disaster. It's more complicated than that. It's a little bit more hands-on, but technology is such a huge component of it if you're doing it at scale. Um, that so nails it, man. That, that's the, yeah, it, it is complicated, but there's a simplicity to it, right? You're matching you know, a need with a demand, and, yeah. and, and that's the brilliance of it. You know, you're able to even um, recognize that you need people who can operate chainsaws to clear roads. So you right. train people to do that. Then you've got a, a pool of these people, and when, you need, when there's a tornado, when there's a disaster, you can mobilize them, them quickly. And I think it really, to, to call it a platform company, I think is right, and, and probably where you, where you all don't get enough credit. Um, in, in how you've changed the game and how you're pushing the boundaries of innovation, not just in the nonprofit sector, but, but private sector and across the board. You're also a company of values and you are an outspoken leader. You know, you're a person of integrity. Um, you and I have talked a lot about the leadership void that often exists in Washington and other places. Um, can you talk about this moment in time where so many people are concerned about the president? They don't know if they can count on him. Um, I won't ask you to go too far into it if you can't, but, you know, can you evaluate your thoughts on how to respond to this kind of a leader, what we can do in the face of that? Um, and then, you know, I would love for you to comment on you were a Marine, which some folks may know is kind of like the stepchild of, of the Navy. The Navy's getting ripped apart right now. The acting secretary has fired Captain Crozier. He gave a I think inappropriate speech to the crew. He may be fired by the time this episode drops, but you know, can you talk about the, the, the national leadership and the white house in whatever way you, you're able and then what's, what's happening in the Navy and your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in moments like this, one of the most important things that a leader can do is just uh, speak to the brutal facts, right. And, and, and embrace them. Um, you know, I, I think, um, I don't think it's, it would be a politically charged thing for me to say that we, our national leadership failed us in the beginning of this situation by, um, by, by not, you know, just looking America in the eye and saying, listen, this is going to be bad and we're going to need to, we're going to need to, to kind of reach down and just, just really get through this together. Right. And it's going to be painful the, you know, the economy is going to be hurt. Our healthcare systems are going to be overwhelmed. But if we rise to the occasion like Americans, we will get through this stronger than before. Instead, it was this, you know, well, it's, it's not going it, to, you know, don't worry, it's not going to be an issue. And then it was becoming an issue. Well, it's not going to be that bad of an issue. And then there was a blame game going around. You know, what we needed was just clear, unbiased, and informed leadership. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, there's another thing that leaders can do in a situation like this. If you're not the expert, get the hell away from the podium, right? <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, we, one of the things that's interesting about what's happening in Team Rubicon right now is we've reconfigured our entire organization to be in this fight. And the pointy end of that spear, the leader, you know, at the tip of that spear is not me, right? Because I'm not the right person to serve as the leader for our organization in this moment. So, you know, about a week into this effort, after we went work from home, we appointed a, a COVID czar internally. And basically the entire organization now rolls under him. And that's because I knew that I wasn't the right person. I didn't, I, 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 
you know, I'm not the best emergency manager in our organization. So I, that meant it put me in a different role. So, you know, sometimes you like put, push Fauci up to the, to the microphone and get the hell out of the way. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of what I'm saying. Let the leader, yeah. let the, let the experts speak. Yeah. Um, That's powerful. And the, what about the Navy, man? I mean, this is, Captain this Crozier, is a point man. now where, where it feels like, you know, uh, the, the troops and the politicians are on different sides and, I've been very critical of Modley. I think he should resign or be fired. Um, you know, the crew has now been thrust into this terrible situation where they're basically being asked to choose between the political leadership or their captain. Now, maybe hundreds of them have been uh, have, have come up COVID positive. But, you know, at, at the very basic level, now you got an aircraft carrier full of guys and gals who are trying to do their job. And, and the Navy seems like it's ripped apart in a time yeah. of war. I mean, what's, what's your take on that, Jake? So it, it's complicated. Um, you know, I don't know all the details of, of Captain Crozier's email. I will say that, um, you know, there are, there are expectations of, of leaders in the military. And, you know, copying 20 people onto that email was probably against protocol, right? Probably against protocol. I think it's probably safe to say that. And so I think Captain Crozier probably did that clear-eyed that he was probably going to get fired, right? Because, you know, the, the Navy's built on one thing and that's accountability. So, you know, now I, I don't know if his earlier pleas were being ignored and he thought that this was the only, you know, the only avenue that he had to, to maintain the health and well-being of his sailors, which is his highest priority. I mean, that is his highest moral obligation is, the, is those sailors. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of think that he knew what was going to happen. And so I don't know that firing him was the wrong move, right? I, ignoring earlier pleas for assistance, if that had happened, that was the wrong move that led to it. But holding him accountable for that, I, you know, I think it's extremely unfortunate. I don't know that I, that I would say it's, it's a shameful move. That being said, Mobley going on and giving this complete, you know, this, this ridiculous speech that is unbecoming his office, he needs to be held accountable too, right? Just like, you know, Crozier knew what he was getting himself into. He got held accountable for it because that's what the Navy does. Well, listen, if you're at the top and you're the acting secretary of the Navy, you're going to be held accountable too by the secretary of defense. And I, and I would, you know, I would support uh, his removal on those grounds. I, I think, you know, it was inappropriate. It was juvenile for him to take a swipe at Captain Crozier. Um, I think ultimately, you know, going back to what I said about Crozier earlier, um, they may have had no option but to remove him. That doesn't mean that they can't respect him on the way out for, again, doing what his, his highest moral obligation was, which was to take care of his sailors. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think the whole thing is just, it's extremely unfortunate. I also suspect we're probably going to learn more in the coming days yeah. and weeks about what actually happened. And if, if there's really any criticism to lob, it's that this, this, uh, this was all executed without an investigation. I mean, you had, you had captains of warships that were driving them into other ships that didn't get relieved for 60 days pending an investigation. It's like, well, we know the ships collided. So right. Right. We're, sa we're, sa we're sailors died, right? There yeah. were folks yeah. who died and, and the, they, they were still pending investigations. But the central point there that I think is, is probably outraged most Americans is that the crew felt like they needed help and they weren't getting yeah. it. And Crozier yeah. felt like, he, you know, whether he did it the right way or not, he felt like he was a vessel for the vessel, right? He mm -hmm. was going to push forward the, the, the calls of what they need. So I want to ask you, Jake, you know, you guys are at the tip of the spear more than any other nonprofit I know of in America, more than most, you know, organizations in America. What do you all need right now? For folks who are listening and want to help, what do you, what do you need? 
Uh, we need uh, we need inspired Americans who want to you know serve their neighbors in this time of need. Uh, we've got 120,000 volunteers. We're going to run out of volunteer hours in 30 days. You know because this is that's just how big and broad this response is. So for any of you listeners out there feeling a little helpless about how you know what you can do, you know Team Rubicon is considered an essential service under all of these shelter in place declarations. Volunteering with us can get you out of the home into the field, working alongside under the right authorities, helping, helping your neighbors, um, in this moment when they need it. So, you know, let's get, let's get your, your listeners involved, uh, with, with team Rubicon. Obviously we need, you know, we need financial support. This is, you know, an unprecedented, you know, economic fallout, uh, that is, that is coupling with the, with the pandemic. To be frank, we don't know how that's going to impact us yet. Um, we are raising some money relative to this, this COVID response, but you know, we think that our kind of our end of year revenue pipeline could be significantly impacted by a 30% downturn in, in the stock market. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, but I think more than anything, you know, what do we need? We need America to start acting like America. So I, I imagine the the people listening to your podcast, Paul, are, are proud Americans. You know, how do we just through our just literal everyday interactions, everyday actions, just inspire the people around us to just be just a little bit better. Um, Cause that's what we need more than anything right now. Mm. I love it. I love it. During that answer, two more sirens came by my house just to frame it up for people, right? Like that's how often they're coming through. And I think your call to action is an important one because it's been one of my big criticisms of the president. He's not issuing a call to action. Team Rubicon needs volunteers. The VA needs a thousand uh, uh, doctors to come out of retirement. New York needs healthcare workers. And it's what, you know, President Bush didn't do after 9-11. He didn't issue a call to action. And I really respect yeah. that you continue to do that. And for folks listening, you know, we've talked about Team Rubicon before. They are the helpers. And, and this can get you out of the house. This can get you on the yep. front line and get you involved and you can be helping others. But Jake, you're also a guy with um, tremendous perspective. And I've asked this of a lot of other uh, guests on the show. Would you ever run for office? A lot of people have asked you to run for office, either in Wisconsin or, or somewhere else. Would you, would you ever run for office yourself? Uh, I mean, I would never say never. I will say that it's not anything my wife would ever support. Um, and you know, I think that, uh, I think I've had the the rare opportunity to have inordinate impact in for this country with what I'm doing. I think a lot of people, um, think about getting into politics because they want to have more impact. And I just, you know, you know, I, frankly, I, I think I can, I can impact my community, my country more in the seat that I'm in than, you know, being one of 435 congressmen flinging mud back and forth across the aisle. It just doesn't make sense for me. I, I appreciate that answer. You could also could be one of the 100 senators or you could be, <laughs> you know, one of the members of the cabinet. So I, again, yeah. I, I hope you're on the short list for whoever is president, you know, this time next year. Um, you're also a guy who, you know, who knows how to maintain, um, himself, maintain his people. You focus on your family. Your wife is, 
is even more impressive than you are. And I mean, for folks that don't know, it was an amazing situation for a long time where she is a meteorologist, right? right. She's predicting yeah. storms on TV that you would respond to. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. amazing, you know, you were this celebrity super couple. Yeah, I don't funny. know if there's, yeah. did they ever come up with a, with like a, 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 like when they had Benefer, did they ever come up with a name for combining you and Indra together? Oh man, no. And they shouldn't start now. <laughs> <laughs> but the two of you are a power couple and you also are just good people. So I asked this of every uh, guest as well. You, you've been through a lot of adversity, man. You've been through really hard stuff and you still keep a great spirit and the contagious positivity. Jake Wood, what makes you happy? Oh man, it's cliche, but it's gotta be my daughter, you know, 18 months old, you know, the world is her oyster. She, she gets joy from the smallest things in life. And I, you know, I look at a world that I've experienced the worst of this world. You know, you have too. I've seen uh, tragedy like most people can never imagine experienced it myself. And there's just gotta be a better future for her. Um, so, you know, what keeps me motivated, it's, it's building that future, not letting her down. Mm. I love that. What else? Give me something else. Is there, is there a music or, or working out or punching a heavy bag or something oh, else man. weird about Jake Wood that we might not know that keeps you happy, man? Well, going back to your first question, session IPAs and some craft <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I take... A lot of my a lot of my hobbies have fallen by the wayside as an entrepreneur. I think that's a common story. It's kind of it's kind of sad and depressing to even sit here and. and no, you're also. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an out here. I mean, you're you're a uh, you're a social entrepreneur uh, at, at the highest levels, and you have a little one, right? Yeah. Like, there's nothing yeah. that's more social entrepreneurial than having a kid. Yeah, <laughs> and, true. And nothing true. that's more of an ass kicker. You yeah. know, for a long time, I've said that there's only two things in life you only know if you experience them: combat and parenthood. And yeah. once you've done it, then, you know, you know it. And if you haven't done it, you really don't know. Now I put right. pandemics in there too. Yeah. Right? Like if you haven't experienced a pandemic, you don't totally understand yeah. what that's like. Um, but, but man, I, I want to, it's a good ending because I have a giving of the gifts. Um, you've been an incredible leader for this country. I'm honored to know you. I'm honored to call you a friend. I've been so inspired and proud to see your rise from those early days, man. America has been rooting for you, but I also got to give you a giving the gifts and I can't do it in person. So I'm gonna do it virtually. So I got some gear coming for you from okay. our friends at Oscar Mike. Okay. Uh, I know you like tight t-shirts, so I figured size small would be good, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, right. So we, we got, got, jokes, we got a okay. t-shirt coming from, from Oscar Mike. <laughs> I went easy on you, man. Okay. I went easy on you. We've also got, uh, Bravo Sierra is a sponsor of this show. So I think these will come in particularly handy for you. Okay. Uh, All right. Antibacterial body wipes. We'll get keep those at the desk so I don't have to shower. Yeah, uh, man. Since often. you haven't yeah. showered in a while, we can get you those. Uh, and they got shaving foam and deodorant and all kinds of other okay. stuff that you probably don't use. But I know you'll use uh, the, the antibacterial body wipes. Um, I don't have them because I've run out of my stash. But if you had to pick um, between yellow, blue, or pink peeps, and this will drop uh, right before Easter. So this will be the Easter episode. If you had to pick yellow, blue, or pink peeps, Jake Wood, what would you pick and why? Uh, I'm trying to channel my wife who's the, who's got the sweet tooth. I think it's yellow, man. I think that's like the classic iconic peeps. So I got to go yellow. It's a good choice. You're, you're channeling your wife well. Sarah Jessica Parker called them the OG of peeps. Okay. And they yeah, exactly. Are, you're a branding yeah. master, dude. I, <laughs> there you go. I have so much respect for the genius of the brand of, of Team Rubicon. And can you, can you explain one thing quickly, Jake? Um, for folks who don't know, where does the Rubicon part come from? 
when we were crossing into Haiti from the Dominican Republic on that first mission, um, the, that, that border, we didn't know if we could actually get across the border. So um, we thinking back to like the Rubicon river and Julius Caesar taking his army across the Rubicon and that being his point of no return. Um, we kind of thought that phrase in our head, like this is our Rubicon as we approach the border. So we were only a small team of eight people at the time. So it was just team Rubicon and it just mm. stuck never changed it. It's a brilliant, brilliant name. And you're a brilliant guy. And, uh, I felt like you needed the big stuff. So I got for folks who can't, who are listening, That's- this is the gigantic bottle of Eagle Rare. Uh, we only gave it to one other guest, and it was to, to Rachel Maddow because she was such nice. a kind. But this felt like, Jake, it's, it's gigantic. And a one-week supply. Yeah, That's how awesome. tall are you? Are you 6'7"? <laughs> how tall are you? 6'6". Six, six. You're 6'6". Six, six. You're at 1.300 pounds. This is, uh, it has an eagle on it, right? There you go, you know, man. Because of America. And I feel like I'm going to figure out a way to get this to you. Love it, your, man. And your crew. Or, 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 or you keep it and we, we uh, do it on your balcony when all this dies down. That's going to happen, man. We got the 50-pound bottle of champagne that we're also going to pop at there the car go. club when this motherfucker's over, when we get to what I'm now calling VC Day, our victory yeah. over Corona Day. There Corona you go. Um, but Jake Wood, you are an amazing, uh, inspiring, and important American, the man of the moment. Um, you're a hero and, and I've told people before, but I, I want you to hear it as well. Leadership is not just about, you know, getting your, your, your mug on the camera. It's a lot of, it's about a lot about sacrifice and you have sacrificed so much for this country, for the veterans community, for so many people around the world, you know, at a time when American leadership has been in question, I think for over a decade now, you have represented all of us in, in a truly spectacular way. Um, and you've inspired me and you've inspired millions and you've created a movement. You know, uh, Chris Fussell said this a, a couple episodes ago, your tombstone is stamped, man. You know, you can rest easy every night knowing that the impact you've made has created a brush fire that will last long after the coronavirus and COVID-19 are gone, man. Um, so as a friend and, and just as an, as an American, I just want to thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do and all the seeds you've planted all across this country and around the world. Well, you're, 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 you are far too kind. Um, I appreciate it, man. You were an early mentor to me, uh, all the way back during the snowpocalypse. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad we've been able to grow up in the space together. Uh, it's been an honor, uh, and it wouldn't be fitting except that another siren is going by right now. And, and, uh, every time I hear that and every time folks hear it, I want them to know that there are folks out there on the front lines who are the heroes, who are the helpers. And that includes, uh, heroes like Jake Wood. So my friend, thank you. Uh, All the best to you and your crew out there every day. We're going to send all the reinforcements we can. And until then, my friend, stay frosty. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you, sir. Sometimes you need to simplify without having to sacrifice performance, especially during a pandemic. And I got a solution for you. Bravo Sierra creates highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active life. This stuff is awesome. Bravo Sierra pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program with 1,000 U.S. service members and their communities with a simple idea. If products work for them, they'll work for all of us, especially in times like this. Plus, Bravo Sierra gives 5% of all sales to MWR support programs for active duty service members, veterans, and their families. You'll feel clean, you'll look good, and smell great all day. 
with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. Men's Health calls it a game-changing grooming line. So you got to check out bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans. That's bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans. Or you can use angry at the checkout and get 15% off of any order. And some of you have already checked this out. I've seen the tweets, and I'm glad you did. They got a hygiene-ready set. It's the only two products you need to be clean and ready to go. It's a solid cleanser to wash your hands, face, body, hair. You can use it for all over. It's the perfect kind of cleansing soap to use in times like this. And the antibacterial wipes. You can use them when you don't have access to water and you need a refresher, especially if you're a first responder. Throw them on your truck or throw them in your bag, and they're perfect if you can't get a shower in between shifts. The antibacterial wipes are really really, really innovative, and they're perfect for times like this. And I'm really happy to have Bravo Sierra involved as our newest partner behind Angry Americans and everything we do at Righteous. They're really a company with heart and values and integrity. And Flo Groberg loves them. You heard that a couple episodes ago. And I'm sending them to Paul Hazer and his crew. I'm sending them to Jake Wood. I'm sending them over to Miles Caggins in Iraq. And right now you can actually try the Bravo Sierra starter set for free. Absolutely free. It's three of their best-selling products. The aluminum-free deodorant, the hair and body wash solid cleansing bar, and the hair grooming cream. You just pay $6.95 for shipping. It's pretty awesome. Go to the online store at bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans. And if you buy anything else, use the code angry and you'll get 15% off all orders. That's bravosierra.com, bravosierra.com, code angry for 15% off. Grooming essentials, field tested by members of the U.S. military, made in the USA, and kicking ass, just like this show. bravosierra.com. There's always plenty of reason to be angry, especially nowadays, but as Jake Wood showed you, there's reason to be hopeful and reason to keep your calm. Because even more than the virus, even more than stupid, calm is contagious. And if you keep your calm and wash your hands and eat your vegetables, especially as a nation at war, there's a way to make an impact. So it's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time more than ever to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer you a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and will make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. America's a team game, just like baseball. And unfortunately, there's no baseball in America right now. But we still need every player on the field we can get to beat the virus. But unfortunately, due to the madness of the bureaucracy, too many qualified players are stuck in the dugout. Jake touched on it in our conversation. Right now, there are thousands of military veterans with extensive training and experience in emergency medicine, but there's no pathway toward credentialing or applying these individuals into a domestic crisis. Our taxpayers have invested hundreds of billions of dollars to train these individuals as the world's most nimble and effective problem solvers. But in this moment of need, we're keeping them on the sidelines. And Team Rubicon is stepping up. 
Team Rubicon, the veteran-run disaster response organization, is calling on state governors and members of Congress to allow former military medical personnel to be credentialed so they can help overburden hospitals amid the novel coronavirus outbreak. And Team Rubicon's created a petition for the White House that asks for competency-based credentials to be issued for veterans who previously served in medical military occupational specialties. It's a time of war, and we need every fighter we can get. Team Rubicon, backed up by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and lots of other organizations, are calling on Congress and the National Governors Association to re-examine the current medical credentialing system. In the face of COVID-19, we must begin providing competency-based credentials to qualified veterans with medical military occupational specialties. There's hundreds of thousands of them with extensive training and real experience in emergency medicine, but no pathway to get them in the fight. Our taxpayers have invested hundreds of billions of dollars to train these men and women as the world's most effective problem solvers, yet they're still on the sidelines. So this is a damn easy way to help. Go to TeamRubiconUSA.org. Go there and sign the petition and support the fight. We'll also post links in the Angry Americans website and in the description for this show. Help Team Rubicon and help us get more people in the fight who can help. And there's more you can do. You can get in the game yourself. Jake talked about it. But Team Rubicon is built to serve. And in response to the COVID-19 outbreak, they've launched a new program called Neighbors Helping Neighbors. That's the hashtag, Neighbors Helping Neighbors. It's an initiative to meet the needs of our communities through safe individual acts of service. You can find that also at TeamRubiconUSA.org. And there's ways you can help. You can donate. They always need money. So give a couple bucks if you can. But most of all, you can volunteer. Team Rubicon's volunteer base is made up primarily of military veterans, first responders, and medical professionals who are built to serve, but everybody can do their part. You can register as a volunteer, and you can self-report your acts of service and inspire hope and action within recommended safety guidelines. Team Rubicon is serving in communities across the country, providing assistance like delivery service for food insecure populations, coordination and logistics support for those in temporary quarantine, and individual volunteers safely helping neighbors. So support Neighbors Helping Neighbors. That's the new initiative from Team Rubicon by being a part of it. You can do more than help the helpers. You can be a helper. And you can get out of your house. As Jake said in our conversation, if you sign up for Team Rubicon, you're an essential worker. So you can get the hell out of the house. Drop the Netflix and pick up a Team Rubicon shirt. Be a helper. Run toward the sound of the guns. Do your part. Help the helpers. And be a helper. And get in the game. Because stakes is high. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find me on social media using the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, big thanks to all of you for the continued support, especially as we continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome. We're doing this out of the closet in my house. We're getting a lot of people chipping in, and everybody's been super flexible, but I really appreciate every tweet, every note, every comment. It all matters. And big thanks to a few folks that helped make this episode happen. First, Jake Wood, of course, and his amazing wife, Indra. She's as inspiring as he is. And their beautiful daughter, Valija, and the whole team at Team Rubicon. They're an inspiring bunch of people. I'm honored to know so many of them. 
Also, in the fall of 2020, Jake's memoir is coming out, Once a Warrior. And you can reserve a copy now if you go to find it online. The book will trace Jake's journey from his tours in Iraq and Afghanistan as a Marine sniper through the founding and growth of Team Rubicon. Readers will be immersed in stories of tragedy and triumph. Once a Warrior sheds light on the tales from the front lines of service at home and abroad. And it's never been more timely. So my thanks to Jake and check out his book, Once a Warrior. Follow him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere else. And be sure to follow Team Rubicon too. Also want to send a big thanks out to Chris Cuomo for continuing the fight, for continuing to inspire and continuing to fight for so many of the communities we care about. We're sending you lots of love and prayers, Chris, and sending the best to you and your family. Also, big thanks to the whole Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich. She's an umbrella in all storms and continues to hold it down for all of us. Creative Chris Rosenthal, who's a hurricane of creativity. Big Bill Schultz, the master meteorologist who continues to keep us chugging along. And our friends at Bravo Sierra. Really appreciate their support. Go to bravosierra.com. Use it backslash angry Americans to get 15% off. I know many of you have checked it out and I'm getting lots of photos and good feedback. And if you guess the guest on Thursdays, you will get a free Bravo Sierra care package headed your way. It'll help you keep fresh even if you're in quarantine. But big thanks to Bravo Sierra. Also, big thanks to my friend Pete Dominic, the host of Stand Up with Pete Dominic. He had me on his podcast this week, which is always fun. But Pete Dominic's been a big supporter of this show and of me for a long time. I want to thank my friend Pete Dominic for holding it down, keeping us laughing, and continue to bring good content. Check out his podcast, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Also, I want to thank my friend Antonio Neves. Antonio Neves has a great podcast called The Best Thing Podcast, where you talk about the best thing that happened in your life that might be unexpected, that totally changed the trajectory of your life. So check out the Best Thing podcast. I talked to Antonio last week, and that just dropped, and it was a really interesting conversation. He's a super inspiring guy, so download that podcast. Also, a couple other things I want you to check out. Check out Henry Rollins has a new radio show called The Cool Quarantine. If you heard Henry on the show and you liked it, go check out Henry's new radio show called The Cool Quarantine. And check out Henry in our most popular episode ever. If you didn't hear it, it was with me live in a studio audience in Los Angeles on Valentine's Day before the whole world got shut down. But it was a really cool episode. Episode 47 is Henry Rollins. It's legendary and it still remains our most popular episode ever. If you love Henry Rollins, you're going to want to check it out. If you don't know Henry Rollins, you're going to get hooked. Also, check out our friend Mark Roberge, uh, the lead singer of OAR. Every Sunday on Instagram now at 4 p.m., he's doing live shows from his living room. He joined us back in episode 28. He's one of the most inspiring, committed guys in music. He and the band at OAR, great bunch of guys, and they're always supporting good causes. But if you want a nice break with your family or by yourself, tune in for Mark Roberge, a private session in his living room uh, on the OAR Instagram page. It's awesome. And go back and check out episode 28. And I want to thank my friend Chris Fussell, Navy SEAL Commander, for joining me on the first installment of The Dispatches. If you haven't heard it yet, this week we dropped a quick 20-minute pop that I'm calling The Dispatches. I'm going to try to do those as often as I can. I can get them out more quickly. They require, frankly, a lot less production. And I can cook them out and try to get quick hits with interviews that I hope will be useful to you. It's a time of war, and I want to bring you dispatches from the war and from the warriors that will help you, your families, your communities survive and thrive in these tough times. So look for more dispatches batches subscribe now if you haven't subscribed already and get five friends to subscribe get five friends to subscribe post something on twitter and i'll send you a special present but we want to keep spreading the word and dispatches is a more bite-sized 20-minute version of the information integrity inspiration impact you come to love from angry americans bite-sized morsels coming more often check them out and let me know what you think 
All right, and it's time to thank you, some of our listeners. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans just for listening and for your support. And I always want to hear from you. If you don't know, we have a hotline. It's 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call, and I'll make you famous. You can call, tweet, post on our social media, and I will make you famous. I'll make you famous. Like this guy. Mike from West Virginia makes me angry. His kids have to get up and call to make sure their food's coming from the bus. It's kind of hard to hear, but it's Mike from West Virginia, and I didn't want to let it go, even though the sound quality was kind of bad. But he says that he's angry because kids have to worry about food. And I hear you, Mike. There's a lot of kids right now that are having to worry about food. There's a lot of food insecurity. The food banks are, are overwhelmed, and demand is up. So if you can support your local food bank, definitely do that. It's a great way to be a helper. And, Mike, thanks for the call. Appreciate it very much. Be like Mike. Give us a call. Seriously, do it. Do it. All right, some other folks I want to thank. Ray Feldman in Annapolis, Maryland. He tweets it at Ray Feldman 0523. Uh, Ray is a communicator, connector, and collaborator. Authenticity is my superpower, he says. I love that. And he runs a group called FC Strategies, Feldman Communication Strategies. And he sent me some feedback on our last episode with Dr. Paul Hazer, which was Really fantastic. Uh, Dr. Paul Hazer right now is on the front lines. Now I believe he's operating his own ER. He's been tasked with an ER in Brooklyn and Brookdale. And we sat down with Paul Hazer uh, virtually for a really compelling uh, episode. If you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. But Ray sent me a note and said, this was an excellent interview. So informative and insightful. Appreciate that support, Ray. Also want to send a shout out to Quarren Tommy, who tweets it at Winston Wolf. Uh, his Twitter handle says, New York City, somebody's boring me. I think it's me, Thomas Dillon, veteran and Sox fan. Complaints, and then he's got his email address, which I'm not going to give you. You can go find it. But he's in New York City on the Upper West Side, and he sent this great tweet and said, as Paul likes to say, look for the helpers. So tonight, I'm sharing this from an old friend of mine, Katie. She began raising money and delivering lunches two weeks ago for nurses and others at New York City hospitals. Watch the video. You'll laugh. You'll cry. And please share. Hashtag hold the line definitely i've retweeted it would ask you to check it out you can follow winston wolf on twitter but big shout out to my friend corin tommy big shout out to katie and all the other helpers in new york city and seattle and miami and all across the country also want to thank paul m jones from new haven connecticut he tweets at i s e n o jones he says he is avoiding insanity one game at a time and he heard the show at flo groberg and sent me a note and said great show thanks for the info just talking to my brother a former ranger veteran of iraq and somalia and he's working corrections in connecticut they have no plan no ppe and he doesn't exactly get to social distance on the inside i'm scared for him Please speak for him. Thanks. You got it, man. I am speaking for him, Paul. Sending a big shout-out to your brother and everybody else working in corrections and folks who are locked up who listen to this show. No matter what side of that you're on, we are sending you support and sending you the best and sending you health. Uh, we will speak for you. We will be a voice for you and as many others as we can. Also, want to send a shout-out to all the utilities workers. If you don't know, my brother works for a utilities company, and a lot of them are essential workers. They keep the lights on. They keep your internet on. They keep a lot of other stuff on, and they are often underappreciated. A lot of them don't have PPE and proper testing. So I want to send a big shout out to all the working folks out there in utilities, sanitation, and some of the other forces that are not as well recognized. But I also want to recognize Diane Maythorn up in rural Alaska. Luna Phoenix AK is her Twitter account. 
uh, and her bio says A&P, and she is a recreational dog musher and a novice horsewoman. How cool is that? And she asked me, have you ever thought about putting a playlist on Spotify? As a matter of fact, I have. And there's a righteous one we use quite a bit on this show and whenever I host on Sirius and when I do the live shows on my Instagram page, which are still happening. You can look for Righteous Late Night, maybe three, four nights a week around 10.30 Eastern. Follow my Instagram page and we'll do Righteous Late Night. I'll take your questions. I'll patch folks in for interviews and we'll talk about the day's news and have a drink. So if you like Angry Americans, check out my Instagram page and watch out for live shows three, four nights a week, depending upon when the baby goes to sleep. And if I have enough energy and I can survive, I will do those shows. But uh, check out our playlist. It's on Spotify. Look for the Righteous playlist and you can listen to the tunes that we play here. But thanks for that, Diane. Thank you to Paul, Tommy, Ray. Thank you all for the feedback. Keep it coming. Use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you. Thank you. And as always, thank you to my family, my amazing wife, and my two boys. We got lots of quarantine stories, but one that I thought was really, really special is yesterday we watched Bob Ross. We watched The Joy of Painting. I've been trying to get Ryder to watch it for a long time, but we watched it. And he got really into happy little trees. We watched him make a waterfall. And I explained to him that I once dressed up like Bob Ross for Halloween, which he didn't totally fully understand. But the boys and I watched Bob Ross, and it was very calming. It was very nice. If you have to have some screen time, try Bob Ross. And of course, my thanks to my wife for holding it down every single day. We're getting through this together, and I love you guys, and I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate you, my dear listeners, so thank you for tuning in. Please keep pushing through the storm. Please keep the calm. Please keep bringing the positive attitude to me and each other. And please tell your friends to check this podcast out. It's growing. Our numbers continue to move up in the U.S. and around the world. If you're on an Apple device, please leave the show a quick review. If you're on lockdown, you got some time leave me a nice review. If you want to leave a crappy review, go check out Tucker Carlson's podcast. I'm sure you can find that somewhere terrible. But subscribe now, and we will have it hot and fresh waiting for you Thursdays. They've been coming in the evenings. Uh, We need a little bit more time to get them together in this time, but they're coming in Thursday. They will always come on Thursday, and we'll keep those quick hits, those dispatches coming often. Last week, we had Chris Fussell. I got some more coming up, and I will let you know as soon as they're coming out, if you follow us on social media or just subscribe, and you'll see it miraculously pop up in your feed. And as I mentioned, check out Righteous Late Night on my Instagram. I will bring back Ryder in River's Room at some point uh, once I can get time to breathe. But definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And go to angryamericans.us. You can see all our shows. All 54 episodes are there. You can see the video. There's video for this episode and almost all the others going back to when we still did live events at the Car Club in Los Angeles, around the country. And we will eventually have an anniversary party at some point, And you will be invited if you sign up there and we will adapt improvise and overcome until then so stay tuned subscribe for free and share and we will keep this movement growing together week by week by week also let me know if you have guest suggestions would love to hear them send them our way and we'd love to hear them and it's okay to be angry especially now and know you're not alone because we're all a little angry and that's because we're paying attention just one look at you and i know it's gonna be And attention must be paid to the fact that the great Bill Withers died this week. Bill Withers wrote songs that were a celebration of our humanity. 
Songs like Lean On Me and Ain't No Sunshine. Songs that we know from weddings and parties and family reunions. Questlove, the legendary drummer from The Roots, told Rolling Stone once, Bill Withers was the last African-American everyman. Bill Withers is the closest thing black people have to Bruce Springsteen. Well, he was a master songwriter, and he made songs that help you through hard times and celebrated the good times, songs that everybody could enjoy. Everyone could sing. Everyone could share. And that's exactly what we all need right now. Sting once said of Bill Withers, the hardest thing in songwriting is to be simple and yet profound. And Bill seemed to understand that intrinsically and instinctively. I think that's right. Bill Withers was born the last of six kids in a coal mining town called Slab Fork, West Virginia. He stuttered when he was a kid and joined the Navy at 17. He spent nine years in the service as an aircraft mechanic installing toilets. And after he got out of the Navy, he moved to Los Angeles, worked in an aircraft parts factory, and bought a guitar at a pawn shop and recorded demos of his tunes just hoping to land a record contract. He went on to write Grandma's Hands, Just the Two of Us, and maybe my favorite, Who Is He and What Is He to You? If you don't know that one, it's awesome. Bill Withers wrote songs about issues, and he wrote songs about politics. He wrote Better Off Dead, which was about an alcoholic suicide. And he wrote I Can't Write Left-Handed, an amazing song about an injured Vietnam War veteran. Bill Withers was one of the greatest there ever was. He talked about how working in a coal mine and facing adversity can bring people together. Well, if you can stand the, the humor in it, when you come out of the coal mines, everybody's black. Plus, you're in a very dangerous situation. People have to have a certain trust for each other, you know what I mean? And then people become necessary to each other. So that environment, you know, will make you kind of get to understand the guy, you know, working over here because you want him to be reliable. We all need to lean on each other. And we can lean on each other, especially in hard times. That's one of the greatest lessons of Bill Withers and one we all need right now. And while it's sad he's gone, his passing is a gift. And it's a gift that pushes all of us to relearn, share, and enjoy his incredible music. We will get through these hard times. As my friend Chris Cuomo has been saying, together, as ever, as one. We can stick together and get through the hard times. We can all be helpers, like Jake Wood. We can all lean on each other. And we can all find the sunshine every day. I just want to look at you. And I know it's gonna be a lovely day. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Happy Passover and Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Stay vigilant, America. Stay vigilant and stay frosty. Stay frosty. Stay frosty.